Computer, initialize Holosuite. Good evening, and welcome to a very special episode of The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. I am one of your hosts, Perry. And I'm your host, David. Tonight, we're doing our 100th episode of The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. But before we continue, you can find us on Facebook, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube as The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. Okay, now that we've said it three times in a row, you are <laughs> you are listening to the Fire Caves, a Star Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. As you can tell, we are a bit excited because, as we've said, this is our one hundredth episode. We have been doing this, yeah, technically, no, no, yeah, one hundred and one times actually, because we have episode infamous episode zero in there. So yes, a hundred and yeah. One times we have come here bringing you this um, review of a spectacular show that was on there 30 years ago. So um, uh, I hope you're enjoying it because we certainly are. Obviously, you can tell because we're still here. Yeah. Well, it came Mm -hmm. out. Our first episode came out two years ago, September 3rd of 21. So, uh, yeah, fun times. It's been two years of us doing this now. Yes. So that's and that's us doing an episode a week. And and mixed in there, obviously, the little After Dark specials and stuff like that that we do, you know. So, um, a lot of stuff, a lot of content. And as David said, we're also on YouTube and stuff now. So, you can see our faces live whenever you want to. And um, you can also listen to our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. But um, before we get into all of the stuff that I want to talk about tonight, I'd like to, as, as always, check in. Um, David, how was your week and how are you feeling about two years? 100 episodes <laughs> uh, it's funny i remember calculating back when we were going to start doing this how long it might take us to do a full seven seasons of the show and i calculated it would take us at least three and a half years just if we were doing just episodes but because we take uh every now and then to do an after dark episode like this uh that does mean we get to pad our runtime a little bit so it's funny this it, i think we're i mean we're, we're beyond the halfway mark within the number of episodes in the show itself Mm-hmm. I imagine we're slightly beyond the halfway point overall. I don't imagine we'll get to quite 200 episodes is what I'm getting at uh, of the, the Fire Caves as a show for us. But it's oh. fun to kind of reach this milestone. Is that a challenge? Is that a challenge? <laughs> I'm oh, sure we can we find can a lot of things. Oh, yes. Yeah. We can make it. As, yeah, just as... for example, you and I talking last night about when we were going to record this episode. We were like, we could have yeah. recorded this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, as as Jeff Goldblum says, life, uh, you know, uh, finds a way. So yeah. we, we can find a way. Yeah, guys, if um, you ever want to hear Perry break down who's the best Klingon, Worf, or whoever the oh one is from... Oh, uh, my gosh. From the oh, Voyager. Oh, man. <laughs> okay, so we're going there. Our, our, just, just quick, quick summation. Quick, quick summation. Now, as quickly as I can, before we dive into our 100th <laughs> stuff, there was an article that came out from this trash site i'm officially labeling it trash site called screen rant i don't care what anybody says i don't care how much you may have enjoyed their stuff in the past screen rant 
you're trash. And it's trash because of your article you posted, which was saying Bolana Torres, our uh, Klingon human hybrid from Star Trek Voyager, was a better Klingon than our f- fully thoroughbred lineup, Mr. Worf, the quintessential Klingon himself. She was better than him. And and it was for the most ridiculous of reasons. It was like a there was a basically like five bullet points that they gave and then terrible explanations for them. It was a terrible article that was basically a hit piece on Worf, and I was not appreciative at all. So um, to say the least. Yeah. So yes, there may be some time where I revisit that and am willing to go into greater detail. But that's all I'm going to say. And any true yeah. fan of Star Trek in general, but in particular, those two characters should be able to read yeah. that article and see that it's it's terrible. And right. all I will also say about that is the article totally diminishes the specialness, the uniqueness that is Bolana Torres and heaps a bunch of garbage onto Worf. So it's just it's a disservice on both sides while trying to be this weird kind of I don't know, pat yourself on the back fan service to Bolana, it actually diminishes her and it, it's it's bad. It's just bad. Screen rant, you're on notice. You do something <laughs> like that, you post something like that ever again and I'm coming for you. All right? Cuz man, it was sat deep in my soul, <laughs> angered up the blood as they would say, you know. So yeah, don't um don't catch me on a good day when I've got plenty of time cuz I would have fired my own article out there. But we're not here to talk necessarily about um, Worf and Bellana. We are here to talk about um, our favorite, or my favorite, I should say, and hopefully becoming David's favorite uh, Star Trek incarnation here, Deep Space Nine. And what we're going to be doing tonight is going to be more like a look back. What we kind of uh, thought about and anticipated when we first started the series um, with Emissary all the way in season one to where we are now with our characters, our opinions of the show, um, and projections going forward. Plus, we'll be bringing you some stuff about our ongoing um, journey through the Expanse and the uh, ever-expanding Expanse universe. And... uh, yeah, hopefully you enjoy all of that as well. So, uh, to kick us off, I would like to go back and let's talk Emissary. Yeah. And there were a couple of great moments in that episode. And uh, we obviously have our, our standout moment of the meeting of Picard and Cisco, Captain Picard and then Commander Cisco. Now, one thing that we had talked about. Um, in our first episode, if any of you remember, or if you want to take the moment to go back and listen to it, you totally can, um, was how they were like our Batman and Superman of the Trek universe. Picard obviously being Superman and uh, Cisco being Batman here. Based upon that statement alone, that this one's Superman, this one's Batman, do you think that that's held up over the four seasons at all? Do you think that there's been any kind of you know, muddying of that line, or uh, have they switched places, perhaps, for you? No, I do think that analogy holds. Actually, I think it kind of would, I would expand it even a little bit. Um, I would say that Captain Picard and The Next Generation is actually a more like, a, akin to Justice League, uh, because you have an ensemble cast in, the, in that sense. You have a bunch of professionals doing their job, high-flying, getting stuff done, kicking butt, taking names, 
um, and it, being kind of above it all in a certain sense. That's part of the, the fun of both the Justice yeah. League and of the Next Generation. But Cisco and, and his team are more like the Bat family. You got more of that darker, grittier um, storytelling, but you have more of a family dynamic. You got that... Um, yeah. You have you have Cisco and his son. You have him and Cisco and Kira. You got Cisco and Odo. You got a lot more. I think you really do get more personal storytelling from Deep Space Nine. You got you learn more about these characters as persons, as people, outside of who they are as officers on a, a station. Um, Next generation is is about Starfleet. It's about the Enterprise. It's about all these missions they go on, um, and how they go from one to the next, and that's fun and great and enjoyable. But when you get the, when you have a, a space station that's sitting around the same planet and has to deal with the same issues week on week, um, you have to get down into grittier and dirtier details, and that means you also have to build up relationships with people beyond just you know uh, captain and and you know commander and you know you know subordinate officers and so the i really do think it fits still that you know cisco mm-hmm. is is a batman type and that he's got to deal with darker grittier issues but as his family expands it is more personal you know he's bringing on people that he would hope can replace him like mm-hmm. at no point do i really feel like picard is really looking to be replaced you know what i mean like Picard is eternal in a certain sense. I mean, I haven't watched the Picard yeah. show, so I, I don't know how that really you goes. Know, but. I think that's a great way of, of phrasing kind of the, the mindset behind the character of Jean-Luc Picard, that he should always be there. That there's always going to be a place for a person like him. Right. And even in Picard, you kind of feel that even, you know, with uh, the way that Picard is set up, it's very much a, this, he's retired, he's removed from these things, and yet still he is, he's having an impact. He's very important. He's very influential. Um, and he's every bit the, the statesman that we kind of got to see him as in uh, next generation yes he had a bit more to do and you know being in command of the ship and everything else but he still had that kind of regal statesman quality to him right. that um you know worked very well for being the you know the top diplomat of the federation flagship making all these first contacts and and so forth and so on it very much worked you know and then they this, they've kind of continued that a bit in picard um you know but again he's older and there's this need to kind of do a little bit of the passing of the torch, but at the same time, it's very much a uh, now right. he's teaching people how to move forward. So he's still integral right. to them being their better selves, which is what everybody right. kind of aspired to in Next Generation. Right. Yeah, and like I think a good example of this in terms of Picard is eternal for me. There's a way to kind of explain that. Riker is more of a brawler whenever he gets put in charge of the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. He's more, you know, going to get down and, and throw a couple punches. But he always steps aside for Picard. And you feel like that's not just because he is the XO to the to the captain, but, like, the brawling style takes a second place to, you know, it's, it's good cop, bad cop. Picard yeah. is good cop. Riker would be bad cop. And um, good cop always takes the front lead. 
And so there's always like again, Picard is eternal in some sense. Yeah. Uh, Superman and it was, is the is the eternal superhero, etc. Sorry. He's the yes, Superman is the paragon. He is right. again, we're supposed to aspire to be as much like him as possible, even though we will always fall short. Um Picard is in a lot of ways that same thing. And again, the the race the dynamic between Picard and Riker was very much intentional because they were trying to make a statement about how much this show was different from the original series. Kirk, for all of his, you know, cleverness and ingenuity and so forth, was also way more hands-on and quick to throw a punch if necessary. You know, he could, he definitely liked to, you know, brawl, mix it up a bit, you know, and uh, they were trying to show that this was, that the next generation was a departure from that. This was, you know, it's it's been phrased a lot that, you know, the the original series was kind of like uh, the Wild West. And they was, those guys are a bunch of old cowboys, you know, space cowboys doing this, you know, quick to the quick to grab a phaser and and, and rather than talk things out. And then the next generation is supposed to be the evolution of that. We don't fight so much anymore. We use our words. We use, we take action this way, you know, and, and so forth. Um, I feel like D Space Nine was kind of, it was a, a return to that in a way, but I also kind of feel like it was a correction in the sense of a blending of the two methodologies, uh-huh. showing that where necessary, yes, we're still going to 100% try to bring it to the, the table. We want to talk things out with you. We want to, we want to work on it, you know, whatever. But at the same time, we are not afraid to get our hands dirty. I mean, Kira even says that in the very first episode to Cisco, you know, about how, you know, I guess you, you know, you Starfleet types aren't accustomed to getting your hands dirty, you know, and he pitches right in immediately. And I think that D Space Nine has shown that that was, you know, their kind of guiding force that they were saying that they can do both and um cisco in particular i feel like he does a great job of of integrating that personalness with his crew members that we did not have on uh the next generation on the enterprise with picard and so forth and that we really didn't see with kirk and company until much later in their career so again we're not waiting until later to correct this we're starting it from the get-go cisco was obviously a family man and he brought that with him into his command he was much more personable and and personal with his officers he built you know uh deeper relationships with them beyond that professional that we never saw with picard and we only saw with kirk in two instances with McCoy and Spock. He didn't really do that with everybody else. Right. Not And again, not until much later. You didn't get that sense of family and familiarity with that original series crew until right. way later, you know? So, uh, yeah, you're, I think you're spot on with all of that. And I could, and again, to go to the Batman versus Superman aspect of it too. Um, yeah. Cisco was as dark as they were going to allow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. when it comes to when it comes to stuff like this, because I mean, this was a new, you know, new path for Star Trek in general. They had never done a show that was so, you know, bogged down with such intense political issues where there may not be a particular solution. Trying to inject religion into it and being very careful because we can't don't want to say who's right and who's wrong, especially when it comes to religious perspectives. You know, and but still trying to get a message across about 
justice, about fairness, about honor and integrity. And um, I, I think that so far, I feel like we've gotten some great examples. But as you said, we've just now got to that point of the the halfway mark of the show. And, you know, coming from ample past experience, I know where the show's getting ready to turn or has turned. And so we're going to see more of those things. There's a lot more action coming our way. In fact, I think that this was a great time that we just happened to hit our 100th episode that we ended on the muse. And now we've got this. And then the next part, because the very next episode is such an action packed one. And I can't wait for us to get to it. Okay. All right. That sounds good. (laughs) Now, before we go any further, I do want to take a moment and remark upon, at least at this time, the actors that have passed um, that we have seen so far. We'll start with Camille Saviola, who played um, our Kyle Paca, who, for however brief her role was in Deep Space Nine, she's definitely made an impact. And when we see her in such stark contrast to Louise Fletcher's Kyle Wynn, it, um, it it's odd the way that it makes her character resonate even more, considering she was only in, you know, like, I think five episodes total. And yet she is like the, you know, um, yeah. she's, she is the Kai. You know, we don't really separate anybody else out from that role. We have her. And then, of course, like I said, we have Louise Fletcher, who played Kai Wynn, our Space Pope Karen, as she's been called in a lot of different forums. Um, she is the one that we love to hate. She is, uh, she'll get you. She'll get you. We've got more of her coming in our run of the show. But <laughs> yes, Louise Fletcher sadly has passed on. Um, we just watched uh, uh, Major Barrett Roddenberry, who played Loxana Troy. Um, she has obviously passed. She passed in, well, I think the late 90s, if I remember. No. She made it to the 2000s. She made it to the 2000s. Yeah, that's right. Um, Renee Auberginois, our favorite constable, Odo, as well, has passed. And we also got to see the late, great Michael and Sarah, who played Jayal in the last episode, The Muse. But he was also Kang the Conqueror, the original Klingon um, from the original series. And then again here in our episode with Jadzia. So yeah, we got to see a lot of um, a lot of talent over the years, and a lot of people who have sadly passed since then, and um, don't want to forget them. Uh, also, really quick, we have to do another shout out for Aaron Eisenberg, of course, uh, Nog himself, who has also passed, no longer with us as well. Um, great guy, funny guy. Uh, <coughs> Loved Star Trek, loved the fan base, loved going to conventions. If you ever got the chance to meet him, talk with him, you'll know that's 100% true. He was a fantastic um, um, person, actor, character, and uh, all of these individuals will, of course, be missed. Right. And uh, Majel uh, Roddenberry made it to 2008 from what I just looked up. So, yeah. And she was such a joy. And I'm just going to say it once again, um, you know, I know that there are so many people out there who don't like the character of Loxana, and I really feel like you don't like her because you probably haven't lived enough. And I know, <laughs> I, and I don't want to sound braggy or anything like that, but if you think about her messages, what she talks about, and how she throws herself at life, um, I think it just comes from a person who, you know, as we learned about her 
overall history, her backstory, she suffered so much tragedy and loss that she is, you know, to be so happy and to be so positive and to always work to find enjoyment and fulfillment and so forth. It's, I think it's very um, refreshing for a show like Star Trek to continue that message. And she was such a bubbly, effervescent way of doing it. And I really enjoyed that about that character. And I'm sad that actually the muse is the last time that we ever see Luoxana. Yeah. Yeah, I my only complaint about her is I, I don't like being manipulated, and so I don't like it when she manipulates other characters, even though she has insights into them and then uses that insight to make them do things. But that makes her character interesting, and it was always fun to see her return. You know, oh, here she is again. Um, and, uh, yeah, the show would not be the show. <laughs> Just like Q. She and Q were characters that uh, came back, and we saw them multiple times, but and they they left an indelible mark on the storylines they were a part of. Um, they did, but they also, it was interesting in watching them on Deep Space Nine because they just didn't fit in. For for and But the thing is, like, of all the characters from Next Generation to come over to Deep Space Nine, I feel like they're the only two that were close to making it work. And that's really because <laughs> it's because they are such big characters. I mean, Q, obviously, by just definition, is huge. He's almost incomprehensible, you know? Right. So, of course, he can make it work, but his attitude and the, and the you know, the back and forth, the sparring, both, both figurative and uh, literal, uh, it was so different, so radical from what we saw with Picard. It's right. the reason why he only showed up once and never came back, you know? Yeah. And Luxana, her uh, her energy, her her brightness, did not fit in with the dark that was Deep Space Nine. She was fun. She injected a lot of fun when she showed up. But if that had become like the norm, it would have totally changed the right. the color of the show. So it, the, both of them would not have worked long term. Right. Um, but yeah, um, it's interesting that those are the two though that. Uh, did leave such a pronounced mark on the show. I'm trying to think, do you think there's any other characters you can think of, regardless of whether they were, whether or not they were in um, uh, any other Star Trek show, were there any other characters you can think of that just kind of stand out in your mind from what we've seen from now, from season one to season four, that really just kind of stand out to you? Um, I mean, I guess if we're talking about, re about recurring characters, the obvious ones are Gold, Ducat, and um... What's the other Cardassian? Um, or Shear's friend? Garrick. Um, Garrick. There we go. Um, but they're not the same type. They're not the same. They don't fit the same mold as those two. Where they just... I mean, yes, they, they come and go, but they are they are designed to be recurring characters, not like Waxana um, or Q. They're, those characters pop in for singular storylines. They pop in, make an oppression, and then leave in usually one episode. Um but you know, Gold Ducat and and Garrick are characters that are recurring, and so they have relationships with our characters that build. Um, and so, I can't say that there's anyone that really fits the same mold as those two. But um, I mean, gosh, there have been plenty of characters we've seen that have have been great. Um, I mean, I don't, this is kind of a different tact, but you know, I think it was the start of season two where you know they um, Kira saves. 
that one prisoner guy who had been a like a Lee Nollis. Yeah, like I liked that guy quite a lot. Yes. Um, that was who I was thinking of when I was thinking of recurring characters because yeah. he had what a three episode run, I think. Well, it was a it was a three episode storyline. Yeah, it was the the circle. The circle. The, mm-hmm. yeah. I was going to ask you that. You know, what are some plot points that stand out to you? And the circle was definitely one. <laughs> Yeah. That I really was hoping we'd get to, and I really enjoyed. Yeah, season two. Right. That's a season two opener. So it right. ended in season one with a little bit of a cliffhanger, and then the next two episodes of season two were the the conclusion. Right. Yeah, and I actually no, all three episodes were part of season two. It was a it was one, two, and three, wasn't it? Okay. I think it was. I, I didn't think that it was. Check. Let me go back yeah. and double check. But anyway. And that also had the the great uh, Frank Langella in there as yeah. uh, the Jaris Enyo. Yeah. No, no, that was not his name. Jaris Enyo is the name of the Federation president. Um, the first minister the circle, or something. The siege. Those are all season two, episodes one, two, and three. And uh, Jaro Essa. Essa, that's it. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, Minister yeah. Essa. Yeah. Um, the first yeah, prime I, minister we'd ever come in contact with at this point. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, we, we complained about um, Vedic Barail as Kira's love interest. I always thought uh-huh. that I liked the idea better of um, the character I just mentioned, the guy. Shakar. Shakar. Um, no, you like no, Lee, Lee Nollis better yeah. than. Yes. I like Lee Nollis. I like the idea with the, with the arc of the character in those three episodes of he's someone who. You know the the hero worship he had received. He reveals to Cisco is not quite right. Like he didn't kill this commander of the Cardassians in some one on one battle of supremacy. No, it was an accident. He he fell down a, a hill and ended up in a river. And the the river was also where this one guy was bathing, this Cardassian general, and he just managed to pull his blaster out faster than the guy bathing. Um, but everyone told the story over and over and over and made him a hero. I always liked the idea that he was having to embrace part of his hero-ness, you know, stand up for uh, what he believed was right. I And I, I, I've always been frustrated that there haven't been more regular uh, Bajoran characters other than Kira. I mean, we, yes, we have some recurring ones like Vedic Barail or, or Wynn, but, you know, if this station is supposed to be orbiting the Bajoran homeworld, I would hope, I would expect, frankly, that we'd have more Bajoran characters so I was hoping that season two was going to have him kind of come on as one of our more recurring characters, you know, work with Kira to help, you know, run the station. Like he be a more, you know, public relations officer mm-hmm. slash um, icon while she was doing maybe the behind the scenes work to get stuff done. Yeah. And they like work together, may even become a romantic pair before Barail really kicked off his nah, he was he, I feel like he was too revered for that. I don't think and that he it was would also have, yeah. older than her. I feel like he was yeah. in his 50s and Kira's supposed to be in like her 30s. And that they could have made it work, frankly. I think it could have made it work, but it's not the, it wouldn't have been the first time that an older man was with a younger woman. It's, <laughs> it's so, true. It's and in the and in the 90s <laughs> and in the 90s in particular, that was like their favorite thing, you know. Right. To show that the guy still had it, you know, yeah. was to partner him up with a, <laughs> uh, a freshly thirty, yeah, a freshly thirty something, you know. Right. Um, I do also think that that was kind of the the road they were going to go down in regards to Lee Nolas becoming a recurring or even a main, you know, right part of the cast. 
Um, because he did so much to develop his storyline, even before we, we saw him. We knew, you know, they were walking us up to it. We knew about the Cardassians' rapid, you know, withdrawal from the Bajoran sector. We knew that there were still prisoner camps out there. We knew there had been several prisoner camps. We knew about the brutalization of the prisoner camps. We knew all of these things that these people, if and when we found them, were going to be severely oppressed, brutalized, subjugated individuals. It seemed just natural that when we finally found one who was this kind of revered hero and to see that he wasn't this person, he was was kind of a broken man. I wouldn't necessarily say broken maybe exhausted man is the is the better term for him he just seemed completely burnt out of everything and he had to be kind of revitalized by seeing how much bajor had changed and talking with cisco really seemed to enlighten him as to the new the new role he could play in the changing face of bajor so i i felt like there was this potential they were leading us up to right that um you know you could say it was squandered or or whatever but at the same time I think that it did enough to make the Bajoran characters more interesting in general. Because yeah. even later when, you know, we see Kira with Shikara when she meets back up with him and they end up fighting uh, with Kai Wen over the Reclamators and they're traipsing through the uh, Bajoran outback, basically, and um, trying to avoid the other general who was hot on their trail. I mean, even that general was very compelling. They had a, they did a great job of making us interested in these Bajoran leaders when we saw them, and then we would just never see them again. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot there that they could have worked with, for sure. Right. But, yeah, I just think that it probably came down to, like, scheduling and, you know, because doing those shows back then, I mean, we talk about it now, but, I mean, they were doing... 18-hour days, and they're filming 24, 26 episodes for every season. It's probably a lot to commit to, and if you've got any sort of other obligation, uh, other jobs, uh, family, like anything like that, it's got to be rough. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, any job, no matter how much you're getting paid for it, when you're locked away for 18 hours a day, every day, six days a week, seven days sometimes, you know, and you're just doing this one thing, it's Probably very taxing. <laughs> so, especially if you're a person who has to wear costumes and, and makeup. Could you imagine being Quark and you got to wear that uh, all day? Oh, gosh, he's a real trooper. <laughs> Armin Shimmerman, man. Woo. <laughs> Between him and Worf and, and anyone who played a Cardassian. Yeah. I really just don't know how they... No wonder y'all were just recurring characters. I wouldn't have been able to do... Like, as, <laughs> as much as I think I would love to do it once, yeah. there's no way you could be like, yeah, we're going to need to do this every day, 18 hours a day. Like, no. On, no. on that point, you ever heard how Jim Carrey got through the Grinch? You know, he played the Grinch. Do you mm-hmm. know what he said I did. Him? Didn't yeah. he... He said that he... Um, he trained with the CIA in like torture, torture or something yeah, like that in order torture. to in order to get through it. Yeah. You know, you yeah. don't think about it, but I mean like just trying to imagine stepping into a suit and you might be comfortable for a while, but eventually even just beyond sweat and and the excess heat buildup. Oh. I mean just to think that you would never feel the breeze. 
You would never, you know, feel the the slight temperature variations in a room. You would, none of that. You would be right. completely closed off. It's amazing how much of a, a sensory organ your skin is, yeah. and you don't appreciate it until something is completely blocking it. So, and even with the, you know, with part of your face exposed, you got heavy makeup on to change the color of your skin and, and so forth. Yeah, I don't know. That's yeah. the real acting talent. Can you bear yeah. this? <laughs> Can you bear this for a couple of years? Yeah. yeah. Seriously, yeah. Because not only do you have to get in and out of it, or like get in it like six hours, but you have to get out of it and get back in it all over again. Ugh. Now, I know that they have streamlined those processes a lot. Um, even in the time of, you know, Deep Space Nine, Armin Shimmerman, he had done several interviews. He talked about, you know, when they were first doing it, yes, it used to take like, six to eight hours to get all of his makeup and coloring and costuming and stuff done. But then they were able to get it down to three hours. So, you know, huge lifesaver when, again, you're going to be filming for at least 16 hours. So, yeah, I mean, that's literally all day that you're, you're going home, you sleep for a couple hours and then come, come back. Yeah. Brutal, brutal yeah, stuff. I can't imagine. Oh my gosh. Uh, now, yeah, now that SAG-AFTRA strike started to make a little more sense. <laughs> oh, man. So, as I said, I, I did want us to turn our attention to um, uh, not just recurring characters, but standout moments. We talked already about um, the first episode, Emissary, of course. We've now talked about uh, the circle and the siege and that, you know, great opener of season two. Are there any other moments to you that just in your brief up to now season four run of Deep Space Nine that really kind of stand out as, you know, great moments or not so great moments? Man, it's always hard on the spot to like go, oh, yeah, this particular. Of course it is. That's why I like asking. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the beginning of season four was also great with the the way of the warrior, right? Is that the yes. Way? Yeah. Yes. Oh, I mean, come on, the the Klingon Empire breaking faith with the with the Federation in order to go after the Cardassians. Oh man, biggest change in you know Star Trek politics I've seen since I started watching. Um, as I've said multiple times, the Star Trek's greatest accomplishment, in my opinion, is making me like and be interested in the Klingons as a culture, like appreciate them as opposed to just be like annoyed by like, it doesn't make sense. Like, yeah. no, okay, maybe it does. Maybe there is some weird freakish version of the world where this makes sense, this way of way of living life. Um, or at least that it's interesting enough to keep them as characters that uh, you re- routinely um, visit. Um, yeah, the, uh, the wormhole and the dominion is very interesting. Um, the, you know, the, the, the shape shifting changelings, I feel like, you know, we had, you know, a two-parter in, in this season where, you know, they go back to earth to help deal with that, but it's taken a back seat again. Yes. We, I was going to say, we haven't really seen much with the Dominion yet. We got a little bit yeah. of an introduction with them in Season 3. Then, right. like you said, here in Season 4, we had to go to Earth. And, and that was more about Earth politics than it truly was about the Dominion. Right. You know, and, um, yeah, we haven't really seen much of the Dominion uh, lately. Right. So, And if I have any complaint to make at this point is that I feel like Deep Space Nine, because it, it at times it wants to do the the regular, you know, 
week to week, you know, new storyline unrelated to other storylines. So we, we, we reset to, to normal by the end of the episode. And the status quo is returned to the end of the episode. But because we're on a space station on, around a certain planet, which has a certain history, which is also near a certain wormhole, et cetera, et cetera, I feel like we really should lean more into the the, the, the regular storylines, the storylines that build on each other. Uh, so, like, just a quick example. I've been watching Suits, mm-hmm. the show that Meghan Markle became famous on. Season one, the episodes are pretty isolated to their to their storyline like what the the it's a you know case of the week kind of show in the first season you know we have this this case in front of the docket we have this thing to do um there's a there's a storyline going out through the first season but in terms of what the episode is primarily focused on in terms of whatever you know suit they have to work on that's the one that's part of that episode but starting in season two of suits the storyline became much more cohesive season long. We have one particular legal fight we're trying to work out throughout the entire season. It might be broken into two halves. Like we, we accomplish our goal halfway through the season, but then something else comes up and now we have to deal with that for the rest of the season, something like that. I feel like deep space nine, because of the way it's set should be able to lean more into that type of storytelling but they mm-hmm. don't at times. And for example, I feel like it's it's now it's been several episodes since we've seen any major plot points really move forward. Other than going to the mirror universe and seeing Worf as the commander and of the Klingons, which the is regent. fantastic. Um, we haven't seen many Klingons in a bit. You know, his brother came to the station, but that wasn't you know directly related to any you know. Uh, let me put it this way: we've seen small incremental storylines that reference like. The Cardassians need help, so Gold Dukat comes to Kira. But it doesn't move the plot line in any major way. It just it's a small part of an overarching story, which would be fine if we had a lot of those moments kind of building up, but they feel isolated. And it's unfortunate because it feels like some of our bigger, more important storytelling elements um, we've kind of left beside the way for a bit. Um, but as you said, you know, I guess starting next next episode and going on we're going to get yeah. some bigger better stories so I don't know. so we'll see so there's a little bit of, of lore about this and you can pick up on some of this in the documentary about deep space nine which is called what we left behind which we will end up watching in our run here for for this and it's some other stories and things like that that basically the there was a there was a bit of behind the scenes fighting about what this show was going to be about. And, um, you know, as much as, you know, next generation was such a success as an episodic show. And they really wanted to capitalize on that success and kind of keep things going. But at the same time, they had this room of incredibly talented writers who had another you know, idea in mind for a story they would like to tell. And they were trying to get the permission they needed to tell that story. So there's a lot of back and forth, which ends up playing out in the way that episodes are kind of laid out. And um, then almost overnight, it seems like there is a, there's a change. And then the cohesiveness and the story building and the world building gets better. And uh, it's basically credited as because, it's around this time that Voyager starts. 
and Voyager is now starting to pick up steam. And there's this big movement to make Voyager kind of the flagship Star Trek show. And they're launching UPN Network. And Voyager is going to be the flagship show on the UPN Network. And they're trying to build up all this other stuff around Voyager that they just, well, frankly, stop paying attention to Deep Space Nine. And so Deep Space Nine just kind of, you know, they were just like, while no one's looking, we're going to run as fast as we can to this thing. Yeah. Facebook okay. Baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No one's looking and we're going to, we're just going to go for it. And yeah. they did, they did in a really big way. And it's funny because, you know, they'll say later on that by the time anyone really, you know, kind of circled back around and was like, well, you know, what, what's going on here? It was almost too late. You know, the show was almost done. So they were just like, you know, we have to let them finish it. It has to be this really big thing. And then, you know, they were also planning on, again, once, once Deep Space Nine was over, they were going to return to really kind of pumping up Voyager. But Voyager was also kind of fraught with its own issues at this time too. So there was this weird kind of, uh, almost like the franchise was kind of sabotaging itself to a degree. So by the time that Deep Space Nine was over, Voyager was halfway over. And then with Voyager coming up on its own end, it was, there's probably not going to be any Star Trek for a while. And then there was another idea for a Trek show that came out there. And it was, uh, I'm going to say haphazard at best. I don't think they really knew what they wanted to, yeah, what story they wanted to tell there either. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, by the time they figured it out, the ratings were awful, and UPN was dead, and uh, yeah, just too many things had changed and happened uh, f- from getting there. That yeah, the show was off. So, right. But um, yeah, I, I love that. That's how Deep Space Nine really kind of got things done. Was they were just basically like you know the redheaded stepchild, and no one was paying them any attention, and they just kind of you know rapid fire, and they cleared up a lot of things. We got back into the serialized story building that uh, really the next episode kicks off for us in a big way. The shifting focus and getting us back on path with you know the Dominion and. Uh, the other side of the wormhole and, and all of this stuff. We kind of get back on that track and then we're just going to run with that for the next uh, few seasons and um, get some great stories out of it. Now, this is not to say that we're not going to have those one-offs, that there's not going to be those stories that kind of don't deal with anything or they're just kind of like personal development stories or bottle episodes, I just like to call them. Right. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's less less apparent. Right. Um, from here on out. Right. Um, did we watch before the Muse? Was that the Maquis episode? No, it wasn't. Never mind. I just realized. I just remember what it was. It was not yeah. the Maquis episode. The next episode so is for the cause. Yes. Cisco learns that his girlfriend Cassie might. You mentioned Maquis. I'm just saying. I I read the wiki. I was asking if we because I was asking like where we were in in finding out stuff about the Maquis. So yeah. so there. So next You're week rude. we'll find out about the Maquis. I, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Maquis well, since, are another. I was gonna another, say since we're talking about them. <laughs> yeah, another another great storyline. Again, at least in my from my experience, it was introduced in Deep or the Next Generation um, with Ensign, or I guess that was Lieutenant Rowe by that point. 
a character again I've said I love and wish could, we've had more of, but I imagine actually the Maquis were actually introduced here on Deep Space Nine because the episode from Deep Space Nine probably came out way before the episode on TNG. Um, but yeah, that's another storyline that we haven't seen much. And now it makes sense because the Cardassians are currently uh, being just, well, I mean, the, the Klingon Empire attacked them. Um, and so the Maquis was meant to fight against the Cardassians, so how is that going to be affected by the Klingon invasion? I imagine that's going to be very much a part of the next episode. We'll find out all about that in the next episode, mm-hmm. so I don't have to worry about those questions, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. Yeah, like TNG, like it worked so well in part because they were just episodic. We have a problem to deal with. We got 40 minutes to solve it. Bada bing, bada boom. You have to, I mean, you have to get really good storytelling to make a good you have to be good at storytelling to make something work in 40 minutes. But that's one mm-hmm. type of storytelling. And so if Deep Space Nine was to go the other route of, you know, major plot arcs, season-long storytelling, um, I think that could really work. Because actually, I have to say, like, going back to Suits, like, season three, I, I'm thinking, I think it was season three, but I mean, certainly during season two, there were parts of episodes that didn't have payoffs until episodes later like it really was well planned yeah. out from my experience as a show in those in those seasons so i really appreciate that uh when a show can really really pull that off um you know what's another yeah. show that did that very well the expanse <laughs> oh no i was gonna say <laughs> Battlestar galactica the reboot <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Battlestar Galactica did a great job with this, and I'm going to say that part of that is because the main writer, producer, director of Battlestar cut his teeth on Deep Space Nine. So I think he just kind of learned how much he could do and how much he wanted to do. And when he got the, you know, the keys to the kingdom, basically, for uh, the reboot of Battlestar, he ran with it. He didn't he didn't let them kind of like wait until no one's paying attention and then take off. No, he did it from from day one, hit the ground running. And uh, that show does a great job of not just world building but of sowing seeds again from episode one and then doing a great job of reminding you of those because even before they actually pay off they just would do little things to remind you of something that had occurred you know five episodes ago and you need to just kind of like keep that in your mind because we are coming back to it we did not forget we are going to come back to it and um i'm thinking in particular you know, the very first episode of, this, of of Battlestar is all about how they have to flee their homes and they're leaving people behind. And then we saw basically the whole first season is somebody trapped on the planet and having to figure out how to make his way back to the fleet. Um, but even then, knowing that they have left people behind. Yeah. And then we see, you know, them, you know, try to come back and care Thrace mounting, um, you know, a... a not even an intentional rescue mission, but then she, you know, when she realizes there are survivors, then it becomes all about the rescue mission. And then, you know, getting back to the fleet and then we're watching the politics and the fallout of trying to have a rescue mission and why we're not going to do that. And then all this other chaos happens, but then somebody would have a conversation and be like, oh, no, we didn't forget about him. Still want to do this rescue mission. And then more chaos would happen and you wouldn't hear anything about it, or whatever else. And then finally he just pops out of nowhere we're doing a rescue mission. It's like, wait, wait. I thought we had decided this was not going to happen. We just went like a whole season and a half of saying no, you know. 
and now here we are doing it and it was um i just love that dedication to things like that and that payoff you know and then even with recurring characters which it's interesting to say recurring characters when you're thinking also about Cylons who are basically, you know, cloned replicas or whatever, but it got to the point where they had distinctive personalities. So you would see one die and then one would, then it would walk back in in the next scene and you do that flashback of their death and be like, Oh, that's, that's that number eight. Oh, that's that number six. It's not that six. It's that six, you know, saying things like that and becoming very familiar with, or, you know, yeah, I mean, they, they obviously they make it easy to distinguish them from one another. But I'm just saying, you know, that was the whole the whole thing. Oh, wait, no, that's that's Caprica six. That's not BSG six. That's not, you know, things like that. Right. So, yeah, um, another show that I need to um, uh, rewatch. I keep I, I bought the, you know, the DVDs of that a long, long time ago, back when DVDs were popular and convenient, which. I mean, does anybody really still buy DVDs anymore? I don't think that I don't think that we do. Yeah, you know? I mean, like I, I think I said I bought the Blu-rays for the Mission Impossible movies when I went to rewatch them, but like I didn't even have a Blu-ray player because I had never needed one for years. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's just like I mean, I was kind of the same. Like I, I broke out the DVDs for Battlestar and I was going to watch it, and I realized I don't have a DVD player. And then I was like, well, oh wait. Uh, thank God, you know, my computer will run uh, DVDs, but yeah. yeah, I just don't have a DVD player anymore. I just, it never occurred to me until, you know, that happened. So um, it's interesting the way that that plays out too with technology, things we just don't have anymore and just we're, we're fine without them. Yep. Well, now we've talked a lot about a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, and we still have a lot more to go. So uh, for any of you who are listening, uh, take a buckle break up. real quick. Get you some water. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, buckle up, Buttercup, because we are not done. We are not, not done. All. We have a lot to cover. Um, but I did want to take a moment to talk about the fact that when we first started this show, you were very new to Trek in general, and you had only really been watching the next generation. In fact, when we started this show, you were what around season, I'm going to say four, maybe yeah. five of, of next gen. The idea was, um, you and I had agreed that basically I needed to watch up through, um, the best of both worlds, uh, the Borg invasion storyline. Cause that's of course what set Cisco's story going. Yes. Um, and once I got through there, you know, continued TNG, of course, but, um, that's when, uh, we could start talking about Deep Space Nine. So I started watching that, got through that point, and finished TNG while we were still in season one. Of yes, Deep Space Nine. Um, yeah. So this is David's, you know, first run through of Deep Space Nine and, and all this. Obviously, I've watched Next Gen. I've watched all of them multiple times. Heck, even at this point, thanks to you know sheer boredom, writer strike, whatever you want to call it. I've even seen all of the new uh, Trek shows at least twice. So um, with that in mind, what are your thoughts so far of, of Deep Space Nine? How do you feel like it uh, stacks up and compares? And is it, and also the final question would be, do you feel like it's a good continuation from next gen? Um, so I would say, I think I've already kind of touched on, like, I feel like Deep Space Nine is leaning, it leans itself toward 
you know, multi-episode storytelling or season-long storytelling, and I'm frustrated the show hasn't really leaned into that as much as I feel it should. Um, and I've already said before that I'm not as big a fan of the darker just lighting on the station. Like, the Enterprise mm-hmm. is bright and shiny. And very beautiful. bright. And, yes, and, very bright. And the Cardassian architecture is designed to be more... I mean, I don't know if oppressive, oppressive. is quite the right... I mean, <laughs> That's the yeah. word. Uh, okay, all right, Oppressive, we'll it. it is. Yeah. I, mean, I guess the best way for me to really explain it is... Militaristic. In, well, in the personal quarters, like the Cisco's is where I'm thinking at the moment, the lighting is weird because it has lights, but there's like slats that like block the lighting. And so it comes through like through slats. So, so in universe, let's not forget that the Cardassians are a, they're basically reptiles. And so the, you know, the, the allure of things to be warmer and to be darker works for them. Um, when you get with the Bajorans and the, you see the Bajoran architecture and styling overlaid with that, I find it, well, oddly beautiful. I, I, I don't know why. Like, I, I like the way that they do that juxtaposition of the dark, draconian, militaristic look mixed in with this very warm, vibrant, you know, um, I don't know if you can use, the, I guess parochial would be the better term for the for the Bajoran style. Um, and you put those two together. I just think, I, again, I think it's beautiful. I can't think of another word to describe it. I love the way that that stuff looks together. When you see those, again, the dark with the, in particular, the Cardassian um, control panels, right? They tend to be greens, and I think there's like a pinkish color that they use as well. But then the Bajoran stuff is bright reds and or deep reds and oranges and and things like that. And so you put them all together. Works for me. Absolutely works for me. When we went to um, Leggett Parm's home when uh, Kira had been kidnapped. Okay, right. And uh, his house was that was also those very, you know, warm, vibrant reds with the with the gray backing and so forth. I, I loved all of it. I love their style. I love the Cardassian style. I don't know who came up with all that, but uh, great job. Uh, right. Please go, and in and, and their clothes and stuff as well, please go talk to the people who keep costuming Jake and smack them around a bit because they're they're wrong. But uh, everything else they're doing for those, I, I really enjoy. Right. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, I, again, I, I mean, I've said it before, but I've always found that to be kind of just unfortunate. Because it, I think it is, frankly, just off-putting compared to to the to Enterprise. I mean, it's, it's that's why. That's why. Darker. Yeah. Um. You know, you know what we should, we should we should compare now. We should compare Jake and what's his face from TNT. Well, I think Wesley. that's enough comparison. Yes. I think what Wesley you just said <laughs> right there is enough comparison. Wesley uh, there we go. Jake and Wesley. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Because Jake and what's his face. Because I feel... Who do you like better? I'm just going to add, that's the first question. Who do you like better, Jake or Wesley? Well, I'm going to say I like Jake more because um, I like his relationship with his dad more. Like, Wesley's relationship with his mom was nothing special, to be quite frank. I mean, I, I don't feel like there was anything truly standout-ish. It didn't stand out in my mind. 
Um, but as you said multiple times, the Cisco's relationship is very sweet and loving. Yeah. And, I mean, even yeah. last episode when when Cisco went to go leave on the three day vacation that Jake suddenly pulled out of, he still kissed his son on the cheek. Two grown men by this point, and they're still, you know. That's right. Jake very... is like Jake is like what sixteen here. I think he's eighteen. Isn't he? Is he eighteen? He's about. He's old enough to go off and go to Earth and study, but he's taking a year off to stay on the station oh. for one. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if if the first season he was fifteen, we're on season four. Then yeah, he's eighteen. Um, but um, I I just feel I mean this this season in particular has really laid it on. I feel for Jake Sisko because I feel like he's a tragic character. I feel like... Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, especially because of the, you know, obviously the second episode of this season where we go to this alternate future and he truly is a tragic figure. You know, he's mm-hmm. led this life that's been overshadowed by the the guilt of his father's disappearance. Not even death, but like his father is, you know, blipping in and out of existence. Um, and he's the only one that could save him. Um, but the idea that, you know, he didn't have any human companions, there aren't even any Bajoran companions that he has. He only had Nog of all the people. And of course, Nog wasn't exactly like Jake was having to help Nog. Nog didn't Mm -hmm. really help to Jake. It was really a one-sided relationship in that sense. And so Jake is now writing stories. And in our last episode that caused him to nearly die because someone was, the woman was basically this this parasitic being sucking the life juice, the creative life juices out of him. And so I feel really bad for Jake. Cause I feel like he, you know, being brought to deep space nine has been good in some ways, you know, he and his father have connected and he, he is coming, becoming the man that, you know, we've seen in that alternate future is proves to be successful in some ways. Um, but I also, feel for jake i feel like if, if his mom was still around he could have lived a no- more normal life you know if he if his dad had refused the, the the gig as we talked about in the in the pilot episode the emissary episode you know if they had not taken the gig they would have been back on earth you know they would be back at the, the new orleans you know uh restaurant they would have been living that life and um so part of me feels for jake Cisco. i feel like i mean it's only season four so maybe more will happen but I feel for him as a character, you know, Wesley Crusher was always <laughs> Mr. Wonder Kid, and, you know, the, mm-hmm. the kid who's a genius from episode two. You know, he's so genius that when you know, everyone's going rogue, he's like rerouting the command module just for fun and like and like he's a genius at it. And it turns out he's been sent like he's he's a kind of person who's not gonna just like he doesn't join starfleet because yeah he transcends space time and becomes yeah. a traveler yeah you know? yeah exactly, he's so, exactly he's so yeah. otherworldly otherworldly brilliant genius above everything else he yeah, is now an alien starfleet he, is beneath him like that's yeah. who wesley crusher is and not because i mean that the episodes where he is um being court-martialed for the the deadly you know aerial maneuver that he and all yeah. the cadets did in that episode you really want to smack wesley crusher across his dumb head because you're like you're a smart kid you didn't have to act stupid you're lying to picard of all people the one person you would think that you would not be dumb enough to lie to and he finally says the truth but anyway so um yeah 
Jake Crusher, Jake Crusher, oh my god, Jake Sisko <laughs> is the character I wow. like more. Um, but I really hope that Jake is able to. I really want him to blossom. I want him to really mm-hmm. blossom into something by the time the show finishes. So we'll see. So I'm going to take a weird stance here, and I'm going to actually defend Wesley um, okay. because. I'm going to say weird because I don't like Wesley. Um, and But it's not... I don't like him for anything that he's that he's done or that he did or anything like that. I think it was because as a kid watching Wesley, I was always jealous because he got all these great things to like experience and play with and whatever. And I really wanted that and, you know, didn't have it, you know? Right. You wanted um, to be Wesley. Yeah, to a certain degree, I think, and I think that's what a lot of people, you know, who were my age and watching the show were were wanting. We wanted yeah. to be Wesley. We wanted to be around these people who didn't, um, you know, I mean, beyond like Picard, didn't really diminish him. You know, like they right. they encouraged him. They worked with him. You know, and um, yeah. the thing about Wesley uh, and and what we see of him and his relationship, I think that this was an epi- this is an instance of. Star Trek not knowing how the franchise not knowing how to represent um, parent-child relationships well. Like, because if you think about it, it's not even just Wesley that has an issue here. Um, all the children that we see on Next Gen, they're they're not done very well. They're always these very flat, one-dimensional, cheery, overly cheerful, or overly mopey kids. You know, and it just it's just every time that you see him, you just want to roll your eyes. You're like, oh, God, you know, it's another another whiny kid. I don't want to do calculus, daddy. And it's like, oh, God, just push him out an airlock already. Solve the problem, you know, um, whereas with um, Jake and, and Ben, they I feel like they did a very good job of just kind of taking the sci-fi out of it and making them very relatable. And I think that's why their relationship one, the relationship was so successful and two, why people did tend to gravitate towards their relationship more. We weren't listening to Cisco berate Jake about the importance of uh, interstellar whatever the hell or right. And we weren't watching Jake tinker around uh, in engineering and having to explain complex concepts and why the adults just don't listen to the genius G Willikers. <laughs> we didn't we didn't have to worry about any of that here. I mean, we we saw a parent trying to get their kid to do their homework, right. and we saw a parent who was trying to get their kid to not have uh, crappy friends who were a poor influence. We saw a parent who wanted their kid to eat dinner on time and who wanted them to pick up, you know, skills and have a summer job and, right. you know, do all these things to prepare for their future, which is things that we've all heard countless times from our own parents and for those of us with children, things that we end up saying to our kids. So it was infinitely more relatable than raising a genius, I guess, you know. Yeah. And and Beverly, as much as they wanted her to, on the one hand, be this loving, doting mother, on the other hand, they also wanted her to be this attractive, available, capable scientist. And, um, you know, there's just only so much of both of those you can do with a character. And I think that's why their relationships suffer. They didn't, they didn't know how to do that. So, and maybe they learned from their mistakes. And when they went out it, you know, got their second at bat here with Jake and Ben, they were much more, you know, prepared and could represent it well. 
Um, but yeah, I think that's why that one suffers. And Wesley gets a lot of a lot of crap for it. And I, I I know that I was in on giving him some when I was younger. But over time, I've you know kind of softened to the character a little bit. Just been like, you know, he he wasn't that bad. <laughs> he 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 definitely had his moments where he was very annoying. And right. it's in those moments when he tried to when he was trying to fit in. I feel like that's what it, that's when he really annoyed me. Like right. you brought up when he finally gets accepted into the academy and he gets roped into this group and through peer pressure they cause the death of another student. I was like, that's out of character for Wesley. Wesley right. was always, you know, he, he was already beaten that line of being in Starfleet and being a perfect officer and, and whatever else. And for him to suddenly <coughs> give in to peer pressure of all things, it just yeah. didn't seem didn't seem right to me. Yeah. So I didn't enjoy that either. Yeah, well, that's where that storyline was weird, too, because it was, like, the commanding student, the, the student that was, like, the commander was the one pressuring them not to say anything. I forget exactly the reason why. And then when, you know, Wesley finally tells the truth, that commander, you know, kid, he, like, steps up and takes responsibility. But, you know, Wesley still has to take a punishment. I think he has to like redo this semester. Yeah. He had to sit, he had to sit a year. He wasn't going to graduate on time. He had to redo the whole year. Right. Which honestly, and that, that also doesn't quite make sense, but that's, that's whatever. That doesn't make anything. My point is, is that if I have to choose the two, like who I like more, I think I, I'm more sympathetic to Jake and therefore I relate to him a bit more. Mm-hmm. I, again, I feel like his character this season has been kind of a tragic one um, as he's kind of in this, you know, limbo state between, you know, childhood and adulthood. And again, I hope he blossoms. Um, again, like, I'm not saying Wesley was a character that I would have done away with completely or anything. He was, I think he actually made a great point. He was a great character for bringing in, excuse me, a younger audience into enjoying Star Trek. Um, it was brilliant, actually. You could have mostly adult characters dealing with problems, and therefore it was an adult, adult audience that it was meant for. But because it had this one precocious kid every now and then, you could get the younger audience to, to you know, use them as their conduit into the show, and that's brilliant. <laughs> I don't think Jake Cisco ever quite fits that mold nearly as well as Wesley does. Um, so. Um. Yeah, I, I would agree because I think that you know, um, Wesley. I think he was supposed to show this whole yes he's a genius but he also works very hard like they made a very big deal of him always studying and needing to study and needing to you know just be prove his prove the genius prove that it's not you know just luck of the draw or whatever whereas jake you know he was not i mean he was a good student but he was not just sailing through things he was not um, you know, tinkering around in ops and stuff like that. I mean, yes, he worked with O'Brien, but it was more like it was obviously it was like his dad made him get a summer job. That's that's kind of <laughs> the best way to best way to take that, you know. That's right. Yeah. He was way more interested in being, you know, free and creative and, you know, obviously the writer. Um he, you know, he played Don Jot. He um uh pursued women way out of his league and older than him and i don't know what that was about but hey godspeed jake (laughs) as o'brien said you know um but yeah that was the kind of life that he was living and i think that it just it was just them trying to show you know differences 
And I think it was also a part of that was dealing with the fact that his his mother wasn't around to give him added guidance and structure. You know, he right. was coming out of a dramatic experience, as was his father, and they're trying to figure out who they are now in this post uh, post Jennifer existence. Right. But yeah, Jake is still my favorite. I mean, I'm not gonna crap on Wesley as much, but Jake is still definitely my favorite. I. I there was a time, yes, when I wanted to be Jake. Then there was a time when I wanted to be at least Jake's friend. And now it's just like, you know, hey, um, totally get it. Totally yeah. get it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's brilliant. It really is smart. Because I don't think they've done anything like that with the new shows, right? There aren't any kids. Um, so Voyager also featured a child, but they did theirs. It, it was a, a, a crew member, uh, Samantha Wildman, who was pregnant, and then she gives birth to the first child on Voyager, Naomi Wildman, and then we watch the first few years of Naomi's life. Um, so by the time that Voyager ends, Naomi's like... Seven, right? Not quite. So, no, because... Time college shenanigans. <laughs> yeah, I was I was just thinking about it because the, the character, the actress who played the character, was clearly you know ten, probably twelve by the time the show ended. But um, you know, you could say that because the mother was human and the father was of a species called Katarian, so maybe their you know physiology is different and so aging them up is whatever but yes technically by the time voyager ends naomi should have been six because she was her mother was pregnant with her in the first season and i believe she gives birth to her in the second season show runs for seven seasons so yeah she should have been five six years old but uh no the actress who played her at least ten (laughs) <laughs> by, the, by the time by the time Voyager makes it back and, and the show's over, she's at least ten years old. Yeah. So, gotcha. yeah, she's walking, talking, stalking people, interfering with things, <laughs> you know. And then Voyager yeah, also had a series of Borg children <laughs> on the ship for a while, and oh. then at the end of the show's run, two main characters who had you know we'd watched their relationship kind of develop through the whole show, and they end up getting married. They end up having a child and they and the child is born on the very last episode of, of Voyager. So. Oh well thanks for ruining it for me. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Now you know what to look forward to. All the way at the end, baby. There you go. There there, you go. there it is. Spoiler alert, baby. So <laughs> um and then so let's see. After that Enterprise doesn't feature any children. They talk about children, and there is one episode where a child is born, but it's short-lived. The baby dies, so there's no, there's no children. Um, Strange New Worlds, no children, but that's only hasn't been out for very long. Picard, no children. Well, but they're not a child. They're like a teenager when we're introduced to them, late teens, early twenties. So that doesn't really count either. So. <laughs> There's another there's another character at that point. You don't get the specialness of childhood. You're just another adult who happens to share someone's name. We don't care about you. Like that's how that's basically done. So So yeah, you know. It um 
children are around. They do they do make their whatever, but none as significantly focused on the way that Wesley and Jake were. Yes. So those those are the special ones. Gotcha. So any any predictions for the next half of Deep Space Nine? Well, you've said that the action picks up, and you said that basically the show is allowed to do what it wants. So I'm just going to say in a general sense that you seem to be intimating that some of our bigger, more action-packed, more heavy, and more greater, more important storylines will start really getting some focus. We'll really start getting more from the Wormhole, Cardassians even. Um, the Marquis will make an appearance next episode, apparently. Um, yeah, I, I hope Bajoran politics continues to be interesting. Uh, you know, I want what, uh, Minister, what's his name? Um, Shakar. Shakar. I like Shakar. I do feel he was turning into a little bit Vedic Bariley when he started hitting on Kira in that last episode he appeared in when he was like, oh, I think I like Kira. I'm like, damn it, man, I want you to be a man and go say your thing, your piece. But that was mainly an Odo episode, so I, I know kind of why they did it that way. Um, but yeah, I, I like him. I want him to work, and I, I want him and Kira to work too, frankly. I'd love for her to, you know, find a, you know, I'd like her to get married and have kids by the end of the show or something. You know, like let, let, let the finale of Deep Space Nine also have a baby being born for all I care. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just uh, – I really want a lot of the the threads that we've been given to really start being pulled on and tied mm. together and woven together into some really great storytelling. So, yeah. Okay. Makes sense. And I also want Worf to find a wife. I feel like he should find a wife. <laughs> I want the wharf bashing to stop. <laughs> um, I want people to recognize. Give um, yes. I'm so tired of hearing the wharf bashing. Worf is such a terrible father. Worf is, you know, ter- he's not a terrible father. I think he's the, a father who did the best that he could with what he had from the culture that he came from. I mean, we don't understand how all of that stuff works out. But um, one thing I always like to point out to people when they talk about Worf and that whole thing with Next Gen, let's not forget that Worf was like 26 years old when Kalar showed up and dropped Alexander in his lap for the first time, okay? He wasn't a 40-year-old man well aware that this woman had his kid, whatever, you know, and he just wasn't, wasn't taking care of him. He wasn't even 30 yet. Okay, um, it's very, and I feel like that's very important to note because what would you do at 25, 26 years old, and someone shows up and says, "Here's your baby," your and one year old, yeah, yeah, here's your one year old here, or really when she first brought Alexander to him, Alexander was I think three, he was you know standing there you know, and and wow. walking and talking and and so forth. Now, you know, again, Klingon aging and whatever else being yeah. what it is. We don't know. That could have been the equivalent of a one-year-old there. Again, Worf was 26. I know people don't realize that and don't think about that, but in the greater Trek chronology, he's 26 years old. So, yeah. And then she shows up uh, with the kid, and then, you know, she promptly, you know, dies. 
Great so, character. Another great character bites the dust. Ah, I'm so mad when that happens. Yeah. So I mean, now he's got this kid who knows nothing of him, nothing of his his culture and their ways and and, and so forth. Who's only ever been around his mother and his mother's friends and her lifestyle and wherever they were living, countless you know thousands and thousands of light years away or whatever it was. I don't know. And suddenly he has to figure out a way to take care of this kid and do his job. I think it was an impossible task to ask of anyone. And I think that it was incredibly wise of him to be like, to admit that he didn't know how to do it. He did not have the tools to do it. And he sought help and his parents, his foster parents were there to help him out. And then when they couldn't do it anymore, he did take on Alexander. He brought him to live on the ship with him and they tried. And for all that we know, when their relationship ended on, you know, when, uh, presumably with the destruction of the Enterprise D and Worf is studying and whatever else, because we don't know what happened between him and Alexander, because we never really see that part of the relationship again. That's true. Um, they're so fine. Yeah. Right. When Because in Season 7, Worf and Alexander are fine. They, they have their rocky moments, don't get me wrong, but they're doing much better. They're going on you know, holodeck trips together. They're, they're getting along. They're doing things as a, as a family unit, and they're making it work. So we have no reason to think that they didn't continue to do that. Now, yes, Deep Space Nine touches on their relationship again, but it's still very much the same thing. They have their tents, whatever, but they're fine. Right. So... Yeah, stop with the whole he was a he was a deadbeat dad or whatever. He wasn't a deadbeat dad. He didn't know about the kid. To be a deadbeat dad, you have to actively know about your child and then willfully turn your back on them. He right. did not do that. He didn't drop his kid off at some foster family. He didn't just abandon them on some random space station. He didn't just push him out of the airwalk and say, "That's done." Right. He, you know, he 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 did what he had to do. So, right. cut it out. Yeah. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, obviously, I'm going to defend Worf every time. So <laughs> I, I hate to circle us back around to that. But uh, we do have other things to talk about for this special 100th episode. And um, we're going to switch tacks now and go to our other favorite subject, um, The Expanse. Woohoo! So, yeah. yeah, I hope you weren't expecting this episode to end. I know that sometimes we go over a little bit, and you're probably thinking, <laughs> all right, they're probably, they're probably aware of that, and they're going to do it. But nope, we're not stopping. We're nope. keeping it going. We're doing it yeah. live, man. We're doing it live. <laughs> so, here we go. Yeah, yeah. Cibola burn, baby. So, we're going with Cibola and not Sibola. Oh, uh, is it Sibola? Ah, I've been saying it's Sibola. Yeah, I don't know. It's one of those words that, yeah, I swear, like, like, there are times when I get words and I start pronouncing them a certain way in my head, and I have the hardest time unlearning it when it's wrong. Like, adolescent, I used to say for the longest time, a docilent, because I had mis, like, I had, like, dyslexia the, the letters and mispronounced it, and then in my head, and for the longest time, never corrected. And finally, it's a docilent. A docilent. Not ad adolescent, which is the weird pronunciation I gave it. No, you're saying it wrong. Oh, am I, I doing it again? You, I, it's yeah, I think you just. I think you just. Yes, I was gonna say uh, you just. You <laughs> I, mixed yourself yeah, up again. again. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Dang. No, that's 
that's um i had a similar situation with the word monotonous um i remember in in the seventh grade in particular i was in this um uh autocad class and my teacher was talking about it and uh, there was this kid behind me who was trying to work out how to say the word and so they kept reading through it and they kept saying monotonous 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 and i could hear them behind me saying monotonous 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 and in my head i was going it's monotonous you dummy the word is monotonous and then the teacher called on me and asked me to say the word and sure enough i went it's monotonous and i like screamed internally because i was like ah! and I was, I was blaming this more i was like i can't <sighs> I can't. And the teacher goes, actually, it's monotonous. And I, I just, I wanted to throw my book at him. I was like, I yeah, know that it's monotonous. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, so, yes, I, I get it. <laughs> I absolutely get it. But Sybil Burn is how we're going to say it. Yeah. Woohoo! Here it is. There it is. Very good. Yeah. And uh, it ties pretty well to season four of the show. Um, they do make some changes because they basically add some more plot elements from our characters. Yes. Um, like Avasarala, Bobby, um, and um, Ashford, and uh, what's her face? Ah, Kara. Kamina. Kamina. Drummer. Kamina Drummer. Yes. Their characters get plot lines, which are fantastic plot lines, by the way. I love what they did with those characters because those characters, like, Drummer doesn't exist in the books, at least not yet. Ashford was a character from the last book who was an antagonist, and he was killed. And he was um, crazy. He was yeah, crazy. and I mean, yeah, and in the yeah. show, because I, you know, I was, I started watching some of that again. I went back to season three, and I was watching some of that, and I was like, yeah, in the book, he was already nuts. Like, and yeah. he was like severely nuts. They, yeah. they arrested him, and and all this kind of stuff. Right. None of that happened on the show. Yeah, there's a you know? mutiny, and then an anti mutiny. It's like a double mutiny. It was a fun storyline, but the show again. Yeah. Knocked that part of out of the park. Um, I love what they did with Avasarala in the show and with Bobby. Um, the Bobby storyline actually has a beginnings in the short story collection, uh, Memories Legion, particularly the story Gods of Risk. You might remember when Bobby's character shows up in the show, uh, her nephew is cooking some drugs for um, – Yes. Uh, for Esai, is that the name of the character in the show, Esai? Um, Esai. And in the books, he's cooking drugs, but the storyline focuses on him. It does not focus on Bobby. In the show, it turns out that the guy he was cooking the drugs for is actually also a he's, – he's running um, – he's, he is working on the black market to give Martian technology to a dark, unknown group which we later learn is uh, Marco and Aros. Uh, he, he is, I hate, I hate that character so much. I know, but he's also in this season, which is great because I didn't realize how important he was when I first saw the season to the, to the later seasons. And so it was great watching him again and seeing Marco and Aros as we get to see him become the super villain. He becomes, um, which again, he's not in Marco and Aros isn't even in the fourth book. So like, Marco Naros will have to be would, introduced yeah. in five, and and I'm interested to get there and see, you know, um, how they portray him in the book because, you know, I'm hoping that I like it a, a little bit better, but I think for me in the show, 
their attempt at making him a very complex character just it fell flat for me and i just felt like everything he was doing was very petty and single-minded and i i just don't i don't enjoy stuff like that at all i don't know where i got that from i i don't i'm i can think of complex villainous characters from other shows that i've liked and books that i've read and things like that um but I mean, there's not like there's not necessarily any one of them that stands out to me as like the blueprint. Like this is one that should should be referenced when you're trying to develop that kind of character. But I just feel like Marco doesn't do it for me on the show. So that's why I'm very interested to get to that that full character introduction. And I I really want them to do it in the book the way that they've done it with um other characters in the book so far, like when we, you know, each chapter is someone else's perspective. I want there to be the Marco Anaros perspective. I want to have his thoughts. I, I think that would help me out a lot. I don't want Holden to be telling me about the latest development of Marco or for, you know, or, you know, obviously Naomi and giving her perspective would be great. Uh, too, but I don't want it to just be that. I want there to be, uh, you know, chapter 11 in Naros. Like, that's what I want. Right. Stuff like that. Right. Okay. Now, yeah, now but, one thing... In, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no I was going to say, um, I like the drummer storyline where she, like, wants to put him out the airlock, but she makes the political decision to keep him alive because she thinks that that would break up the OPA, and so... Um, she keeps him alive, but that's what gets Ashford killed, and it means all the terrible things that happen in the future. It's 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 a great t- tragic storytelling line where a character is put between a rock and a hard place. At least as they see it, they make a decision, and then they have to deal with the consequences of those actions far into the future. Um, like she even quits her job running Medina Station because she hates the politics. You know, Fed Fred comes on the station in like the last episode of the season. And uh, and she's mad at him for playing politics with with Earth, and he's like, "Well, you did the exact same thing. What are you talking about?" And she's like, "Well, I hate politics. I quit." <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, she's uh, Kara G as drummer is great. Ashford, I love Ashford. I love his his. Um, he. This- Go ahead. He's he is a great he's a great character. I was watching the episode in particular in season three where him and drummer are trapped when the slow zone slows real you know, for real and uh they're both crushed by those heavy machines right um i was watching that scene and i really enjoyed their relationship because you know it was it was weird in the sense that everything we had seen about them up to that point was like this slow building antagonism right you know the yes. constant play of who's really in control. I feel like those two did a great job of showing that dynamic. And then we get to this particular scene where they're both, they're trapped. And right. there is nothing either one of them can do. And despite their best efforts, they are not getting free. Right. And um, ultimately, Drummer makes a sacrifice to, you know, kill herself in order right. to free him. Right. Um, now we know in the show, she doesn't die, but she's paralyzed right. because of her actions, you know, but um, I like that. It was basically them finding common ground and this odd kind of respect for each other forming that ultimately led to the decision that was made. And then it's, it's interesting because that decision clearly plays out into 
the fallout of everything else that comes after it. Because like if she hadn't done that, or if she had decided to crush him instead of her, then the problems for Holden and company probably wouldn't have happened. Right. But you know, it is what it. So again, it it's a great solution because it did add more tension, more drama into the into the show, and it was not in the books. It was not done that way in the books not at all. all. Yeah. But it does definitely ramp up that um, that tension factor right. a lot as that yeah. drama. Okay, I'm gonna ask you right now: How much do you love Avasarala in the show season four? <sighs> okay. It's as hard much one. as there's a lot to stuff that happens with there's a lot four. there's a lot <laughs> but the speech that she gives after the martians the marines have been the, killed yes when the marines have been killed i think that it was actually the moment that did it for me that's like totally sold me on her character like again there were so many things that she had done in the seasons before that had already been like, oh, I love this character. She's so badass. She's so cool, right? But in that particular moment, I I was just completely blown away. In fact, I remember that when I watched it the first time, after it was over with, I immediately rewound it and, and watched it again. And then Crazy. I was... Um, and then I was online, and I was on Reddit... And, you know, Reddit does these AMAs every so often. And uh, someone had posted about that particular speech just like maybe a day or two after I had, you know, watched it. And uh, I couldn't help myself. I, I chimed right in. I was just like, I I loved it. I thought that the delivery was great. Sheree is fantastic here. This is just the best thing that I've ever seen. She, why haven't I seen her in more stuff? And wow. people were pointing. Uh, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. You go ahead. You know, well, and people were just pointing out to me that, you know, she'd been in so many different things and all these different movies and, and whatever else. And I was like, I had no idea. And then <laughs> this post popped up that said, Thank you all so much. I didn't realize so many people loved my work. It's so refreshing and wonderful to see that people really into it. And I was just like, No freaking way. <laughs> like, there's no way. That's this not. Is, this is a separate incident from that moment. Where separate. You on totally separate. Se- totally yeah. separate. This was. This was. This was years ago. Because again, like season four this wasn't of the troll, of, was it? Was it? No, no. Because I, I double checked. I, I triple checked. Yeah. But like, so this was like, yeah, we were season four of the Expanse had just come out when this had happened, wow. and so yeah, I was, and I, and just this whole thing thank you all so much this is so wonderful and so great i'm so glad that you all enjoyed it and whatever else and again i double checked i triple checked i'm looking through everything and it was sharia goshlu has a a reddit profile she follows her stuff she comments she was so nice she was so you know she and everybody who posted anything it seemed like she just kind of went down the list and posted a thank you or made a comment or whatever and yes i got one and it was all i could do not to screen cap it and frame it and whatever (laughs) um and then as you know yes you know here we are several years later and uh of course i follow her on on X yeah. now, um, uh, of course I do, and she posted this um, picture spread that she did for her birthday, I believe it was, and so there was this photo op of her in her house, and she's all done up and everything else, and I made the comment using the 
gif gif whatever you want to call it of amos from the expanse where he tells her that she looks amazing and yes i got a comment back from the lady herself and once again i wanted to frame it in fact i did screen cap that one yeah i did screen cap that one so well, yes it... <laughs> at the beginning of season four when holden had seen osdral he gets back to the ship and he says to amos that he saw her and, she, what and he's like how'd she how'd she he said how'd she how'd look she and look? he goes i don't know fine he goes no no how'd she look yeah what's she, yeah. What she wearing he was yeah. just like what yeah. it's like yeah amos man. amos is all of us yeah. right now yeah. yes yeah I, I i mean so at the end of the book season four we get well at the very beginning of the book season four we get abasarala sending a message to holden and fred saying let's have him be the diplomat to help solve this situation on the planet and it's great because she says, and if Fred shows you this message, Holden, don't you F it up. <laughs> like she's like she she drops F bombs like crazy. It's she hilarious. does. And there's a and there's actually a part in uh, this book yeah. where he has received some messages from her. Right. And she, and it's you know, we just get the cutoff of the message, but right. it's more than enough. Right. And she's saying to him, You're like a sixteen year old virgin, you just got your hands on a pair of tits. Yeah. And I was I was yeah. dying of laughing yes, like it's Instantly, I was cracking up. I was like, that's her. I love it. I was like, whoever, like, when they were giving her direction, when they were giving Sheree direction on this one, they nailed it. Because, man, she is, she's absolutely fantastic. I hope that she does, like, really um, just enjoy the work that she did on this show. Like, I I really do. She is a phenomenal actress. Um, I... Don't get me wrong. There are some great performances in the Expanse uh, overall, but really, I mean, they they lucked out hardcore when they got this her. This role was written for her. I yeah. can't imagine anyone else being in this role. I, I couldn't either. I, I really couldn't. Like, I don't know. Uh, and, and, she always and looks amazing. She's always got a new sari on. She's always beautiful, but she's always got the personality. Her relationship with her husband is both sweet and endearing and and kind of terrifying. At yeah, the time. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. she's like, she's like abusive to him. You get but this... then she's like, I depend on right. you. And then you yeah. feel terrible when he's like, I'm done. Basically, at the end of the season, he's like, you, you go to the moon. I, I'm done. Um, but I mean, but at the same sad, time, it's not yeah. like it's not like he's saying it's not like he's saying I'm done in the sense of I can't take this anymore. I don't love you. I'm not. I'm not in love with you. I don't want to be in this marriage anymore. It's more along the lines of. I'm done fighting with you because I know this is what you're going to do. And um, I've known this about you forever. And I'm not going to fight you being you because that's why I love you. So you go do what you got to do. Yeah, no, that's that's how I took it. I take it as the darker version where he the way he says you should go alone and then walks out real awkward like it. Oh, man, that scene cuts, man. And then. I'll have to go back next season. You know, it's really. I'll have to, yeah. I'll have to go back and 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 watch. I'm. I mean, I planned on doing so anyway. Um, but yeah, I'll go back and I'll pay attention to that because I was pretty sure that he was more along the lines of just saying, "I know this is what you're going to do, and I'm I'm going to go because I don't want to be in your way." You know, so because he's always seemed to give it. He's always seemed to give deference to. Uh, well, her job and what she does to him. The way he says, "I'm not sure," and she says, "Please," and he's like, "You should go alone." And ah, man, dark moment in the relationship, at least. Um, but 
what I was getting at is that in the books, she shows up in the epilogue to talk with Bobby and basically lays out what she had been thinking the whole time, which is actually better kind of explained in the show, which is she didn't want people to go to these other worlds because we don't know what's out there. It's dangerous. And in the book, it, it makes it a little more clear, at least from her perspective, that what she's afraid of is Mars collapsing, and she foresees the downfall of Mars. And in the book, we get that from other characters. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. Travis Darala who notices that. It's it's Isai, the, de- the detective slash black market stealer, who's like, hey, mm-hmm. I want to get my family to one of those worlds. Um, you know, this is the big score. I need to do that. And it... I just love the fact that the storytelling of this series is so well thought out. Yes, a planet like Mars, which, you know, they were all the smartest people. They were the ones who had this generational plan to make Mars a a success. But as soon as another opportunity opened up, it caused a collapse in the economy and in the mindset and just Mars. Mars. Mars died once the gate opened. And Avasarala in the book sees that um, in the in the show she's more concerned about the dangers of those foreign worlds and the protomolecule, which is why she has the embargo against settlers going through. And his and and her opponent in the in the election, Nancy Gao, is like, no, we should let people go. You know, very free. Oh, people should go do what they want. We shouldn't hold people back. But Avasarala is like. Are you people crazy? <laughs> Don't you remember how dangerous the protomolecule was? And she's basically holding see, back a tide. And um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, that's. I mean, you're making a great point. I, th- I think that's also something that you know the writers of these books did a great job of kind of tapping into, you know, the separation of generations, because they, in the show, we see how they paint Avasarala as the old traditionalist and that her fear mongering is is the old way of doing things where the newer younger people are just bristling with both knowledge and energy and they they can do it they they get they just need to get out there and do things right and um i mean it's 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 a classic story in the sense of you know the the mentor role and people not listening to their mentors and not listening to their elders and not listening to their teachers and the terrible consequences that come right. from from doing that very rarely do you hear of of younger people foregoing the wisdom of the older people and then having success right it's very rare right so you know they've tapped into that for sure in these stories and they're giving us you know a a newer take on that on this you know galactic scale here and it's interesting because we we're getting so many different perspectives you know we know that Avasarala you know when we're watching on the show Avasarala's not out there she's not on New Terra or Ilus or whatever you want to call it she's she's not there but she senses the danger she senses the foreboding um Nancy Gao isn't out there but all she sees is opportunity and um uh, ambition 
Right. And then we have Holden and company who are there who are like, it's kind of, you know, a little bit of A, a little bit of B, you know, and right. then it becomes, well, it's all B. So, <laughs> you, you know, and then the reports are taking so long to get back. And by the time that anybody can do anything, opinions are already formed and factions are made and lines yeah. are drawn. And, and there's all this stuff that keeps happening. And it's it's interesting that it, it they really make a great job of using those time delays to also help build suspense and right. build tension, you know, and that is another thing that I really credit them with in both the books and the shows yeah. because they make those things very real. They talk about yeah. it by the time anybody even gets this message, it'll be six hours old. By the time right. we get a reply, it's another six hours. By the time they can get a ship out here, it's, 18 months so right. that's 18 months there 18 months back we'll be right. you know adults by then and doing this yeah. and it's just all of that yes really love how they just they give you these um real numbers yeah to use for the yeah. for the time which yeah. is something that you know star trek is terrible at star trek right. you don't know you Most have no idea are. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll say I totally agree with that. The other book I, I've been reading right now is the third book in the Altered Carbon series, and yeah, like I don't know necessarily. Like part of the problem I have with his storytelling is he's referencing things that I have no idea what that means compared to this. Um, the these the the Expanse books do a better job of making you understand where things are compared to each other. I mean, it's not perfect. So, like, sometimes I really do wish like, like a diagram would show like this planet versus this star system or whatever, but be that what it may. Um, yeah. Like when, uh, when uh, Alex was trying to talk to Bobby and the, the, Oh, we're being talked in real time, but they're moving beyond and the time delay is messing up and now they can't talk together. And then at the end of the season, Bobby, Bobby says to Avasarala, hey, you said you wanted to work together. Well, I have some information for you. And she says, Bobby, your timing Timing sucks. sucks. Your timing sucks. (laughs) Just lost the election, etc. Yeah, man, it's so well written. Such a great um, story. Great. It's a unique story. Um, You feel like each episode or each each book, each season builds on on the previous, like, you know, the ring gates, we have to figure out the ring gates. We solved that in one book and all of the tragedy that happens with how that had to be solved. And now we have the first planet and how do we resolve? Like, you feel for these belters, man. Like, they were refugees. They couldn't get, you know, onto a station. No one would let them, you know, drop their people off, probably because they had no room. And so, of course, they, they went for a planet. You know, they went through a ring. They tried to, to land there. And damn it, once again, the inners, they say the planet belongs to this corporation. And how dare they? Like, we're here first. We're trying to just live our lives. And here they are coming down here to try and take control. You you totally understand um, their plight. But then you also understand why Mercury is, is like, right. He's like, well, they murdered a bunch no. of us. I have. Sorry. No. Uh, no. no, I don't know. Uh, I don't like him. No, I don't like I, him. I, I have- don't well, you don't have to like him, but he, he lives in the gray zone really nicely for a bit where he's like, look, I have to institute order here because there are a bunch of terrorists. And he's partially right, but once he's killed the terrorist cell, you know, he like shoots up the, the, the building they're in. He didn't have to do anything else. He murders. That, he slaughters he them. He massacres them. Jackass that he is. It's very true. Yeah, but man, Holden being the numb that he is, 
in the books, he never really does a good job of sitting everybody down to like explain himself. And in the show, he gets all of everybody in the center in the in the center of the town and explains that he's been seeing a protomolecule ghost <laughs> to tell him what's going on, and that's why the planet's blowing up. <laughs> like it's his fault. Like totally botches it. He should have sat the woman in charge of the belters and Mercury down with like a second in command for each of them and been like, look, I'm just here to help work out your differences. Let's get something figured out. He never does that. In both the book and the show, he's more interested in solving the protomolecule problems, which makes sense and frankly does need to be solved. Uh, but I, I do feel like he botched his diplomatic you know, role a bit. <laughs> and, you know, I think that that is one of the things about, you know, all of these shows, and we've talked about this before, um, how many times would problems be solved if everybody just, you know, just stopped and talked? Right. Like, here's everything that I know, and here's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And right. it would just clear up so many stuff because so much of the problems are all because everybody is making assumptions about everybody else, and right. no one is saying anything. It's like, I'm assuming they're going to do this, so I'm going to do this, but don't tell anybody that I'm doing this thing. Right. And so then it's, well, we only saw part of the team move in this way, so now we're going to assume that they're going to do this, so now I need to go and do this other thing over here. And and it's like, we're trying to accurately, you know, judge these people, but they're all terrible at it. They're all absolutely right. terrible at it. And it causes more and more of the escalation, the very escalation that they're trying to stop. And yeah, even in in, in the book, and in this one in particular, no, there were so many times where I just, I saw opportunities where the characters could have just been like, you yes. know what? Yes. I'm just going to come clean. Here's what's going on. Right. And they just don't do it and it's frustrating it's yes. absolutely frustrating and it makes right. me wonder do do we really do that I, I would like to think that i don't i would like to think that if i've got an issue or whatever that i'm yeah but at the same time you know what again they do such a great job of describing people and their actions i mean it's got to come from somewhere right. so i maybe i don't do it all the time maybe <laughs> i do it more than other people I, I don't know but man it's just so annoying and that's like the main lesson that i've picked up if there's any kind of real world application of these fantastical stories to anything it's definitely going to be hey you know what maybe you should talk that out fully and tell everybody what you're thinking before you just jump in and start doing stuff right yeah that's definitely yeah that's exactly it um i i didn't like that in the show they made bossia or bassia you know in the in the book bossia is the one who blows up the, the shuttle which causes all of the issues. In the book. Right. In the but book, in the show, they it's his, his wife. Right. Which I didn't like because in the book, his wife is a medic and she's important for all the medical needs they have later on. And to make her suddenly the one who is both medic and a weapons expert or at least an explosives expert. And that doesn't come into play at any point throughout the rest of the season. It made more sense for it to be Bossia. Let him be the one who you know, has all the problems. That He's the one who does the thing. They really didn't need to combine the story storylines at all. No, I thought that was a mistake. Um, and we already had a built-in, you know, character reference with Basia that we did not necessarily need Lucia to do what she was doing exactly. in that particular regard. Right. They could have still 
um, had her be just a new, another new character who was just a medic and, and so forth. And I think that it would have made the, I think it would have actually made this story better because we did see him first on Ganymede with Prax right. and with Katoa. And now to see him caught up in this again, we had that, it would have been a, a sadder angle for us to be like, oh, this man is mixed up in this too. Like right. he's already lost a kid. Play up that, you know, that traumatic loss and stress. That would have been a great thing for them to do. It took me, in watching the show, it took me a while to realize that Lucia was Katoa's mother. Right. Like, because they didn't, they never mentioned her. They mentioned their daughter, uh, Felsia, but they didn't mention um, any of the other kids, really. Right. So, yeah, it just, yeah, I totally agree with you there. They should have kept it as Basia. And what are their names? Now that I keep saying them over and over again Basia, Lucia, Felsia, Katoa. They got a thing for A's, and they yeah. got, they need to cut that out. <laughs> and then with them, we but they do. We, now that I think about it, because in this in the book they have another kid, they have a son, Jacek. So it's just like okay, like yeah. all of y'all are A's, and then you you messed it up in the end game here with the youngest one. What's wrong with you? They finally learned their lesson. So, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, that's why that's why he didn't die. So <laughs> uh, I didn't miss Havelock. I think Havelock being cut from the show was fine. We didn't need him to be on the Edward Israel giving us updates. Those plot lines being cut to make room for the stuff was fine. But I do wish that they had filmed that scene. I would have loved to see the scene where, you know, Havelock, Basia, and Naomi escape from the Israel and him. Yeah. yeah. And him making the jokes at the guys from the Israel trying to, you know, come after them, but they're just. Uh, amateurs and their engineers who have strapped on the military garb and whatever, and he's making fun of them. And he's like, "Hey, like that one, you know, in the book, the, the part where he's like, hey, um, anchoring your foot to that, you know, wall uh, panel over there is a good idea, but it makes your knee stick out like that and shoots yeah. him. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's like true. that would have been really funny." <laughs> Um, and I think that that kind of firefight in space would have been interesting to see. And then the funny, yeah. you know, the funny back and forth right. would have been, would have been good. But I, again, I understand, you know, I would like to, well, actually I don't understand because I was going to say budgets are budgets, but you're on the network of the richest man in the world. So screw your budget, film the scene, <laughs> give me the scene. Were they on Amazon by season four or was it season five? They got to Amazon. No, they were on by season four. Season three is the was the last one on sci-fi. on Sci Fi. Gotcha. Yeah, season three was the last one. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I I I I just I really like the storytelling of the expanse. I I do too, and and um, I wonder how many people were like me who didn't realize that uh, James S A Corey is a pseudonym. And it's for two people, not one. Yeah. Two people. Uh, did not know that. I don't know why I didn't know that. Because, like, you know, you told me um, about they had hosted uh, a, a podcast themselves. One of them you know, did. One, the well, yeah, that one of them did with, with Amos. And I had actually watched an episode of that. You know, Avasarala was on it, of course. That's why I was watching it. But anyway. Um, uh, um, Abraham and Ty Frank. And it's yes. Frank who was on the podcast. Yeah. yeah. And so I had remembered watching that episode and they distinctly say that he's one of the writing team of Jane. And I was like, and it just it never clicked to me. And um, 
what an interesting and great way to work out a story and get published a, a partnership like that. And um, yeah, I had never considered anything like that before and they, they do it so well. And it's, I wonder, it makes me wonder how they do it. Like, is there just one of them that kind of comes up with like a general story and then, you know, they both kind of get together and work out characters and who needs to speak for what, or do they just, do they assign characters? Okay. You do, Holden, Naomi, and Alasarala, and I'll do Amos and Alex and Fred Johnson or whatever. Like, I just wonder how they how they split the work, yeah. Or if there is any split, it could just be that they just both kind of just write and talk about things in tandem, and then figure out what parts work and what parts don't, and uh, and and go from there. Well, it, so. I- as I've mentioned many times before, I've been reading the other Dune books. I haven't gotten around to some of them. But, you know, Brian Herbert um, has been writing with – it's Kevin J. Anderson who is his co-author. But it's the same idea. There are two of them writing the story. And so, yeah, um, James S.A. Corey as the writer's name for the two uh, writers here is – I don't even know how they, how they would choose that. Like James S.A. Corey doesn't have any sort of relation to their names as they stand. Like one of them is named Daniel. Like why not Daniel something – um, I don't know. But, yeah, like one's first name, the other one's last name, something simple something along those like lines. That. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. Who I, knows? I, it's probably like an obscure reference to. It, it's probably exactly that. It's probably somebody's first name and somebody's last name, but it's like James is Tyler's great great grandfather, and Corey is you know well, the other one's whatever. The only thing I can think of is they do have two middle initials as James S A Corey. One of them worked for George R R Martin. And everyone knows um, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know. Uh, so I, I wonder if <laughs> the mm. two middle initials has anything to do with anything. I don't know. Um, but I, going back to the Dune books real quick, Perry, there's another Dune book that they're about to publish in a month. Like these guys have published, like I'm not kidding, like 20 Dune books outside of the original six. Um, I'm sorry. There's oh, I was going to say there's only – I was going to say, there's only the, the original six. I don't know. I've never read any of the expanded <laughs> universe Dune books. Um, I don't know that I ever will, uh, to be completely honest about to. it. I don't know that I ever will. You don't have to. That, okay. I, I, remember, like... I, I remember after I finished the sixth book, and I was briefly interested, and I went to Barnes & Noble in Bowling Green, Kentucky, of all places. And I saw all of them, all these other books, right? right? And I was so excited that it was going to continue. And I grabbed like three or four of them off the shelf and I'm reading the back, you know, and I'm looking and it, even the, just the back part of it seemed so bizarre to me. And I was like, you know what? Never mind. <laughs> and I just put them back and I have never picked one of them up again. And I've talked to other people, you know, such as yourself who have read some of them and everybody, everybody who talks about them, it's just one crazy thing after another. And I just, I don't know if I have the, the desire to invest in that. Yeah. Some of them are okay. I think the, the, the first trilogy they wrote, which is supposed to happen before the first book, you know, before Dune, that trilogy is okay. I do have some issues with the storytelling. For example, they start off by um, like the opening, the first page starts with the Baron Harkonnen, but he's not big, fat, and overweight and, and gluttonous. He starts off as a very fit, handsome, muscular, 
go get him style dude. And the story over the first three over these three books is about how he became the overweight, fat, gluttonous mm-hmm. person he is. But frankly, while it makes for an interesting story arc, again, a story arc, it messes up, in my opinion, why the character is that way in the original storyline. He's supposed to have always been fat and greedy and gluttonous and that's who he is to say he became that is not as interesting as as saying that he's always been that in my opinion Uh, so that's one of those that's one of those problems that i have uh, or that i hear uh, i I do have but i also hear about from other stories when people feel there's a need to explain everything yes there's really not there's really not a need to explain every single thing something some things can just just be boring these days like yeah because everything yes because because everybody wants to know every little detail and sometimes it's just not the point you're missing the point of the story if you are stuck on why he's fat or why his helmet is blue versus everybody else's, which is orange. You're missing the plot. And if you feel like there, and and anybody who greenlights those projects, we're going to go back and we're going to explain why he, (laughs) he he doesn't wear a cape and everybody else wears a cape. Okay. (laughs) Honestly, that's one of the reasons why I still would say the prequel trilogy for star Wars has some major flaws. Cause I don't like the Anakin explanation for Darth Vader like I like I don't, you know what I don't either I I would have I would have enjoyed seeing that story but the story was crap yeah I mean I like the idea of, of like a good guy going bad like there's there's good stories like I remember I first heard when I was a kid and this and the prequel trilogy was coming out and uh, a family friend the uh, a friend of mine his dad explained that that was Darth Vader as a kid and it blew my mind. I was like, "What? Like Anakin's a baddie? He's be the big bad?" Um, I like that idea, but I also think their execution of the storytelling was flawed, majorly flawed. And I actually like the idea better, at least if I were telling the story of Darth Vader was always a gray dude. He wasn't some paragon. He yeah. wasn't some prophesied messiah. He was just a dude who was willing to cross the line one too many times, and then it. He, he, he committed. <laughs> One day he finally committed. <laughs> That's how I think the story should have gone. But yeah, um, I, I I would have I would have preferred the you know the whole point of Darth Vader is he's supposed to be this you know this tortured soul who you know is that's why he becomes Darth Vader is it's his right. it's his you know that torturous not being able to figure himself out and whatever else i just don't feel like they did a very good job of that right. yeah at all they didn't so they, they try and drop it all in the last book or last uh movie the revenge of the sith or yeah revenge of the sith um yeah it uh, i mean it, it had potential don't be wrong i think it just wasn't executed as well as it should be and going back and writing prequels that's always the problem you're exactly right we have to explain all the details all the little things to the point where they're boring and that is the problem with these prequel dune books um they they've actually done that way too much i can i can talk about more examples of how they've overdone it and made interesting characters just side characters, like the, like a character that only appears briefly, but suddenly he has to have a backstory, and it's like that actually undermines the mystique the character had, or the fact that he didn't even need a backstory. That's just who he is. Or, he was just right. a guy who showed up for two pages, and that's all that he needed to do. But 
Or if you and if you're if you're gonna give them if you're gonna give them a backstory, especially when the characters are so awesome that you feel like they need a backstory, make the backstory awesome. Again, I'm gonna point to Star Wars and you know Han Solo. Han Solo steps on and he's such a dynamic character and he's charismatic and he's all these wonderful you know the these these roguish wonderful roguish attributes that we've got with him and someone finally decided that they just they we needed to explain Han Solo and right. then they gave us that terrible movie to do it and I was yeah. like this is just the worst thing yeah. like you, you ruin the mystique and then it's just like you know um a very short-lived TV show, uh, Young Indiana Jones. Yeah, wasn't necessary. Nope. Didn't need it. We didn't need to know about Indy as a as a kid. In fact, we got the most of Indy as a kid that we ever needed in the final movie, where he was on the train and doing the whole. That was the most that we right. needed of Young Indiana. We exactly. did not need a whole show for that. Exactly. And this this desire and all those things. It doesn't. I feel like those. It doesn't come from a desire of telling a, adding a great chapter to a, a great story, but more out of a cash grab. It's oh, we we're trying to get every dollar we can out of this character. So how can we do that? Let's slap on a pretty face, make them young, put them in some some tight black boots and spandex, and send them on, and let's let's grab the dollar. So yeah, I I can't stand when they do things like that yeah. at all. But yeah, the uh, the new book that's coming out from this 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 these two guys writing Dune books, it's another prequel book. And again, I want to read it because I've been reading them all and I like collecting them. And frankly, it's you're it's, like stuck in. <laughs> I am, but I also like reading them so I can critique them. Like say, I wouldn't have done that. I that was wrong. You shouldn't have done it that way. Part that's actually part of my fun in reading them is is saying. Nope, <laughs> you're not okay. doing it right. But I just like self punishment for that in that way, <laughs> punishing myself. <laughs> well, more power to you. I, I couldn't yeah. do it if I was already that upset with that. I mean, like you know, I already have the the three episode rule on television shows. I I don't know. I don't. I have not established a rule on books because for me, it's like once I start reading the book, even if the book starts off terrible, I'm going to finish it in the hopes that it gets better. Because a lot of times. You know, and a lot of times they do. I've read very few books where at the end of the book I was like, waste of time. Right. And I wish I could get that back. Um, but yeah, um, definitely not getting that with the um, Expanse books. I'm loving these. And yes. to return to this particular uh, topic, I'm so glad that this book gave me more of the protomolecule and it yeah. gave me more of the science this was something that i felt like was severely lacking in the show and i think that that's just because you know it's it was probably hard to film some oh, yeah. of this stuff and there's and the dialogue is also um very science heavy and i think that they were probably trying to avoid having to have a lot of technical uh dialogue on the show we we get we get some don't get me wrong but yeah the books just are a deep dive into a lot of it and i i loved it um one thing i was not expecting was the realization that elvi was infatuated with holden yeah didn't didn't pick weird. that up yeah didn't pick that up in the show um, i'm glad it didn't they, they cut that from the show because yeah. the answer in the book is that she just needed to get her rocks off, and then she loses her infatuation with Holden, 
And I thought that was a bit simplistic. I was like, well, I mean, they tried, they gave you a little bit more than an explanation than that. It was basically that she was compartmentalizing her trauma and the sudden recognition, the, her basically subconscious realization that what she needed was affection and obviously to to get laid but she had also <laughs> pretty much distanced herself from everyone any signs of affection she wasn't hugging people she wasn't holding hands she wasn't doing any of those things that we as humans and a part of society have kind of used as a way to you know comfort ourselves through through traumatic right. events she had right. stopped she had not engaged in any of those things plus right. Again, it's a two-year trip out, you know, so two years plus all the stuff that had happened, her foregoing any kind of physical intimacy or contact, and then suddenly she just, you know, she couldn't take anymore. Everybody has a breaking point. Everybody has a limit. And Holden showed up as the ultimate outsider who she could focus on as being an outlet for this desire that she had, and then to realize she didn't really need that um, outlet. Yeah, I... I you're probably right. Your 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 charitable explanation is probably good. Yeah. I guess for me it was just like <laughs> apparently it, the way the book presented it was she uh, Faiz is her yeah. companion and yes. suddenly she's like he he basically gives her puppy dog eyes and she's like oh and then she's like solved and <laughs> just like. Uh, okay, seems a bit simplistic, but you're right. You know, part of the storytelling for her in the book was that, yeah, she had refused to allow herself those relationships, and so yeah, it had built up for her to the point where she. I mean, let me put it this way: I wish the character Fayez, I got more out of him in the sense of like, like she actually has affection for him. She'd been suppressing all this affection she had for him. Because she didn't want it to blow up in her face right. and cause problems. I wish she had released those yeah. and they became a couple because they actually were attracted to each other. Not because she just needed to get her rocks off and at that turn. Well, and, and, and they kind things. of they kind of intimate that they're heading down that path. You a know, they, they, they kind of do. They also try to play up in the book a little bit about how he's a bit of a... I don't want to say Lothario type i mean he's he's obviously he's very friendly he's very you know uh talkative and he had his share of romantic um entanglements on their ride out there the 18 month voyage out there you know but then they try to make it seem like he's always kind of had this eye for her and we we have to decide whether or not he had an eye for her because she was like the unattainable one because right. he had been with kind of everybody else and she was the only one, like, again, like he said, he'd been watching her right. and he knew that she hadn't been with anybody. So right. was he watching her because she hadn't been with anybody or was he watching her because he was interested in her and also noticed through his watching that he that she hadn't been with anybody? So, yeah, and then he kind of, like, becomes this total, you know, head over heels, yeah. I'm in love with you yeah. guy, you know, yeah. which... That's yeah, I, I didn't, I yeah, I didn't, I didn't like that either. Yeah, like, he starts... Doesn't he almost start like crying or something? No, he does. He cries. Yeah. He cries um, when she goes. She's about um, to leave. Yeah, she's about to leave with and Amos she, and like yeah to go after and, Holden and, and he's all and says, jealous. <laughs> yeah, like 
weirdest goodbye ever because he's like, you're going after Holden again. And, you're, uh, uh, uh. Right. and then they drive off, stop, and then she's like, come on. And like a little dog, he comes trotting right. over when his owner, yes. you yes. know, beckons him. Yeah. And here he comes. And I was just like, Ugh. Right. Yeah, I wish that, I wish what had happened was is like because at the beginning, before the bomb goes off and destroys the space shuttle or the the landing shuttle, um, it turns out there's that other character who dies. But before he dies, uh, we find out briefly that he's been kind of like hitting on her for a bit. Yeah. She doesn't like it. So I would like the idea that Faye is like because he likes her, he caught on to that fact that she didn't like being hit on, and so he wasn't doing that, and it actually proves that he's more sensitive to her needs. And that's why he's a better fit for her in the end. But I feel like the the, the book kind of fumbled that storyline. Um, so I'm glad they cut it. Frankly, it didn't need to be there. Yeah, the story for the it was an unnecessary. It was an unnecessary love triangle. We didn't need to see her kind right. of fawning after yeah. Holden, who was clearly yeah. not Let interested. Holden and, and Naomi be a couple. And yeah, with just, each other, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In fact, she, in the show, she even gets a bit angry with him when he has that town meeting. And explains he's been seeing ghosts, which is funny. She's all like, well, how do we know that you can prove that? When 10 minutes earlier, she was the one being like, I know you have information I don't know. Like, you know something. And now he's saying <laughs> he's trying to explain himself. And Here's how like, I know. Yeah. And, and she's like, I don't believe you. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> 10 minutes ago. I, anyway. I have to admit that in the in the book, though, I like LV more in the book than I do on the on the show. Um, show. Wow. On the show, she comes off as she's um, annoyingly naive, you know? Like, she's got this whole science oh. bent about her. Well, and, um, Holden tells her that he has seen terrible things, and he wouldn't wish anyone to have to witness those things. And she says, I'm a scientist. I would have done anything to see what you saw. Exactly. Exactly. That. That. That, that yeah. is exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it's that uh, naivete that she's got that yeah. I just didn't enjoy the portrayal in the show. I like the actress. I think right. that she did a, a great job, right. you know, but I just, yeah, that aspect of the character, they heightened up because even in the, in the books that she, there is a lot of that, but it's, I guess since we're getting it from her perspective, we also understand that this is kind of like, not only does she enjoy the science, but it's also a bit of a coping mechanism for her. So she is, um, you know, doing these kind of deep dives as a way to make it through uh, the traumatic events that happen right. from one to the next, you know? So, right. yeah. Um, I wish they, again, I wish they'd given us more of that. Like I said, that's the one thing I felt like the show was always missing. We did not have enough of the science, of the protomolecule stuff. And then we right. get it here in the books and it makes, it does make the story better. The yeah. one part of it that I don't enjoy are the interludes where we're where we're the machine or whatever. The whole it reaches the out, it reaches out, it reaches out. Yeah, whether like we're that? the I, I didn't like those parts. I thought it was interesting. It I, explained I, what it was trying to do, and I, liked I mean, it yes, but it's it's that... very it's very I guess because it was repetitive, and I I I didn't enjoy that aspect of it. Yes, I could read it, and I understood it was trying to tell me what it was attempting to do. And again, it's more of the proto-molecule, so I was I was definitely interested in it, but I was more like, get to the next part already. Tell me what tell me what the thing is already. Right. You know? Yeah, well, I liked it because it really... Like that moment, which happened in the show too, where Miller 
he's basically kind of been revived. Like he's back in the show. It's more, it's more clearly stated. Like Miller is like, he's back. And like, sometimes he reverts back to his like hat wearing version of himself, which is like the more docile, not as intelligent, not as independent version. But then the independent version switches back. In the in the book, I like the idea that it's been using Miller so much that like it really does become Miller does kind of get reborn. And that great line of when um, you know he's asked, you know, like, are you alive? He's like, well, I'm not sure, but I think I'm passing my Turing test. <laughs> like, it's a great line. Um, uh, so I, I, I like Miller. He was a great character in both the books and the show. And I'm sad. That uh, the end. I definitely yeah, liked, I like Miller. Sorry. I like Miller better on the show than I, I did in the books. That. I would agree. Yeah. I like him better on the show. Um, but I, I, let me put it this way. Part of the reason the first book is great is because they didn't have too many point of view characters. Like, I think since book two, we've had, like, four per book. And I'm not saying that those characters have been bad. Bobby's great. Thomas is great. Prax was great in his own right. But in book one, it was Holden and Miller. And it was easier to yeah. follow some of the storytelling because of that. Yeah. Um, whereas in the later books, and you're getting cause a now lot we've of got Because now we've got Holden, Havelock, Elvie, Basia. I think that's it. I think that's that it was for in this book. book. But like that was Bull. in this book. And last book, it was Bull. And Bull it was, was Bull and Prax. Well, yeah. Bull and Havelock are effectively the same character, and both of them were cut from the show, if you get what I'm saying. Like, yeah. we, they realized that they didn't need those characters. Um, yeah. So I, I – yeah. Well, I guess let me put it this way. I'm sad that the, the actor who plays Miller is no longer going to be back. I mean, he wasn't back for the last two seasons. I don't know if they'll ever bring the show back, but his character seems to have been done. But, but we don't know that because, as, we, as we've said before, the show stopped at season six, right. which was, if we were taking this as an analog, each, each season was a book. I know there's a little bit of overlap, but essentially each season was a book, and we know that there are nine books in this right. series. So... Presumably, there are three seasons that we have yet to see. Right. Um, uh, there, uh, a while ago, I was saying that. Yeah, well, I was saying you know there had been a lot of chatter about bringing back the Expanse and you know really kind of finishing it out. Whether they were going to do it as like they were going to do one more season and then a movie to finish it or whatever that was. Um, but now, yeah, but all of that is pretty much squashed with the SAG. Uh, strike going on right now so um i mean the, the expanse may effectively be done because by the time you know presumably if this strike goes on for you know much longer by the time that all that is done and worked out and then the dust has settled it may be too late uh to go back and do some of these projects i hope not i would love to see the expanse uh really finished truly finished um but yeah it's uh, unfortunate that that's where we are right. with that. So. <sighs> so would you say that this is your favorite book so far in the series? This is the fourth one. Um, would you say this is your favorite? Because, I mean, you were just saying, you know, the first one, you really liked the fact that it was just Holden and Miller. That was the respect that we were getting and, and so forth. Um, but, yeah, would you say this is um, your favorite? I couldn't say. I would just say this, that. 
in my from what I remember, you've liked the book versions of things more than the show version of things. But I've liked the show so far every time. Than, yeah, I like the show version of things because I feel like they've always done a a fairly good job, with some exceptions, of um, you know, cutting what they needed to cut and adding what they needed to add. This is a great example of that in this season. We cut Havelock from a, as a character. We didn't need him. But we add Avasarala's storyline with Gal trying to run an election and how that how she fails. And frankly, it's great for her as a character. Um, Bobby's storyline leads up to the Marco Winaro storylines that we're going to get in the next couple books. Um, so I, I think the show, again, is great because it allows them to really refine the story they've already got in the books um, and make improvements if necessary. Again, there are times when they, I think they do make – they, they cut in wrong ways and they make mistakes, but that's usually not the case. Um, so I wouldn't – it's hard for me to say if there's one – I wouldn't say that book three is my favorite. I would say book three is probably my least favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the show was smart and they cut it down to a half season when they did the show version. Yeah. Um, I think this one's okay. There just really wasn't – there really wasn't much in book three um... – that would make it a standout. I don't. I. I. I was gonna say. I think that book four is my favorite. Uh, book three is certainly not. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think books one and two fit so nicely together. Their their storylines yeah. are almost one sort of bigger storyline. Yeah, that that's a yeah great down. call. Yeah, because I was gonna say it almost feels like you know book one ran into book two so well. Yeah. You know. Um. Yeah. Um. Uh, yeah, I have, and you're right, I have liked the books more than I have liked the show, but only because the books give me uh, more explanation, more background. Because um, there are yeah. just times when I'm watching the show, and I can tell that something is missing. Right. And I'm always thinking to myself, man, it would be great yes. if we had a little bit more explanation here. And then I go and I... Yeah. yeah. And that is true. Yeah. yeah. And then and then I go and I read the book, and I'm like, oh, that's that's the explanation I was looking for. There, right. There it is. And so... Yeah, that's that's the only reason why the books went out over the show for me, and again, it's so close. But right. that would be the only reason why I say yes every time. I enjoy the books more than the show, right. but it's because I get those yes. gaps filled in. And there. yeah, I think we're both saying that we love both. It's just that yeah. if you have to pick one or the other, you would choose. You're you're saying you like this one more for this reason. Yeah. Yes. Because and and again, this book gives me exactly what I've been craving since you know, first season of The Expanse, it gave me more proto-molecule. It gave me more explanations for things. And that's what I really, um, that's, those are the parts I really enjoy. Don't get me wrong, the politics and the character development is is great, and it's great to follow, but when you, you can't present a diehard sci-fi fan with something as strange and deep in this otherness as the proto-molecule, Right. And then not give me any kind of like breakdowns or explanations or whatever. I'm like, I, come on, yeah. I'm gonna need, I'm gonna need all of that. So, so yeah. Well, David, I think that's gonna be it for us on this Two incredibly hours, long minutes, baby. Yes, <laughs> incredibly long hundredth uh, episode uh, special. It's both a regular episode and an after dark and a dash extra, I would say, (laughs) all rolled into one thing. So obviously we'll be starting uh, the fifth book in the series. What's the fifth book called? Uh, Do you recall? Nemesis Games. Okay. Okay. So might take a week off before I start that one because 
uh, yeah, it was kind of a mad rush to get this last one in on time, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to again continuing it and getting into truly, you know, I guess not necessarily uncharted territory yet. I mean, that will come with really more towards the end of the sixth book and into the seventh. Um, but yeah, I'm still looking forward to all of that. I'm going to be watching some Expanse episodes, of course. And then we will be back on our regular with um, finishing out season four uh, next week. We're not going to finish it season next week, but we're going to just, again, be done with that there and returning to our normal stuff. Right. Um, looking forward to going through that with you as well. And uh, yeah. That's going to be about it. You can find us and follow us anywhere you happen to do the social medias. And, of course, you can listen to us anywhere you happen to listen to podcasts. I do it on Spotify. So until next week, guys, in our 101st episode, take care of yourselves. Thanks, guys.